Hello everyone, you are listening to Knight's History Cast. We have conversations about history. This podcast is brought to you by the University of Central Florida's History Department. This week I had the pleasure and honor of meeting Dr. Bob Beatty, who is an historian, and his latest book is Play All Night, Dwayne Allman and the Journey to Fillmore East. It's an incredible book, so Allman Brothers Band fans, rejoice, because this podcast is specifically tailored for you. But also, if you don't know who the Almond Brothers Band are, um, like how I was before connecting with Dr. Bob Beatty, um, I had no idea who they were. This is still a podcast for you. And hopefully with the goal of becoming new fans, it's an incredible book. We had an incredible conversation about the book. And to keep in the theme of of the Almond Brothers, which you all will will learn as you listen through the, the conversation, we were hitting the note. Uh, to the point where we went over time, quite honestly. This podcast is the longest one I've made so far, and it wasn't intentional. We were just hitting the note. We were, the, the conversations were so good. It was all naturally flowing um, and enriching and educating, educational, and it was awesome, to say the least. So that we went over time, and I wasn't able to ask him the last half of questions I had, which were about his career in public history or in history in general. But that'll just be another podcast, right? All right. But yeah, so this podcast is long. So enough of me talking and cue that music. Hello, this is Sebastian Garcia from Knight's History Cast. I have with me here Dr. Bob Beatty, who is an historian, author, and musician who has worked in museums and nonprofits for more than 25 years. He is a double UCF history alum, a BA in 1994 and an MA in 2002, and received his PhD in public history at Middle Tennessee State University in 2018. He has made most of his career in public history, including a stint as curator of education with the Orange County Regional History Center and COO of the American Association for State and Local History. Dr. Beatty is currently the president of the Lynn, how do you pronounce Lindhurst. Lindhurst Group, a history museum and nonprofit consulting firm and an instructor of museum studies and American history at John Hopkins University. Crager School of Arts and Sciences. That is a big paragraph. Welcome, Dr. Beatty. Thank you so much. There's there's a lot packed in there, isn't there? Yeah, there's a lot, which is uh, one of the reasons why I'm very excited to have this podcast conversation. But most importantly, he's also the author of his new book, Play All Night, Duane Allman and the Journey to Fillmore East, correct? Yes, got it. Awesome. So, Dr. Beatty, I'm very excited. I am too, actually. It's good to meet with a with a fellow student at this end of the end of things. I mean, it was '94 when I graduated, when I was in your shoes, uh-huh. and I was at the uh, end of a five year uh, uh, stint at UCF. Because the joke used to be, do you know that? No, I don't. No. UCF stood for it's... you can't finish. Oh yes, I have heard yeah, of that. <laughs> yeah. So so um, and I almost made that happen yeah. for myself by accident because uh-huh. I was a full time student here back then. That was a a thing for the people going part-time and stuff. So it's, it's good to be on this side of the yeah. table. I'm looking forward to talking to you. Uh, I appreciate the fact you read the book ahead of time. That's a really uh, great treat for me uh-huh. just to talk to you a little bit about what was in there and, and those sorts of things. I always I pride myself on always reading the book because how I see this podcast formatted is an established historian talking with an upcoming historian, me being the upcoming one. This is not like a, a journalist type 
mm-hmm. uh, podcast. Not disparaging journalists, but that's, right. That's there's the, a different. There's yeah. a different purpose to what you're doing. Exactly. So, um, I found this book, one of the most unique books I've ever encountered in my life, and because it's a, from a fan perspective, yet you mold it still in academic rigor and research. Right. Um, so for the listeners, um, to make this podcast, uh, format a little bit clear for all of you. So the first half, we're going to talk about some of the process questions, uh, basically the logistics behind some of the decision-making that went into this book and like the format style and stuff like that. And in the second half, we're going to talk more about commentary, you know, the actual story of Dwayne Allman and the Allman brothers band. And then the third half is going to be some fun. I'm, I'm really looking forward to the third half. It's going to be some fun, rapid fire, you know, fan questions. You know, uh, I want to take advantage of the fact that you are a hardcore fan of <laughs> ABB, which let me um, clarify this. Now, we're probably going to interchange between Almond Brothers Band and ABB. So fantastic. So ABB is the Almond Brothers Band for, you know, the listeners to clarify that. And then the last part of this podcast, we'll uh, we'll talk about your your career and history. Sure. So looking forward to it. Yeah, me too. All right. So my first question um, is, can you explain to our listeners what was the inspiration in creating this book? You know, like right off the bat in the preface of the book, you explain how fandom is at the heart of this process. So walk us through, you know, those attempts. Yeah. So I start any of you who read it. I hope you will. uh, And I start by saying, you know, I I need to be honest with you. I'm a huge fan of this band and of this guy, Dwayne Allman. Um, And I think that, you know, from a, from the perspective of of a historian, right. Um, One of the most interesting books I read in graduate school here on campus uh, with Diana Velez was a book called um, that noble dream objectivity in the historical profession by Peter Novick came out in the nineties. I was here in the nineties when I read it. Um, And it was a groundbreaking book to me because it really talked about this idea that we can be unbiased as we work, that we can be completely free of, of any, any kind of, of, of subjectivity. And, and, you know, look, that's just not possible beyond the fact that the very notion of documenting the historical record in the first place is, is in and of itself a subjective decision and is the decision to, for somebody to save it, whether that person or not. So, so I, I, so backing up that sets up that that piece in the preface where i basically say look you're you're not going to be able to i'm i did my best to separate my fandom from my historian lens um the ability to document change over time or my interpretation of why a story unfolded the way it is um getting to this book you know this is my fourth book but my first what you would call a monograph uh, uh, you know basically on one subject um i wrote a book about a, a subject that's very well known to a lot of people. The Allman Brothers have sold millions of records. They are in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame on the first ballot. They're, you know, any list of accomplishments. But the biggest one is that people bought their records and went to their concerts. That's that is, you know, how and why they are. So they are first mem- mem- uh, uh, remembered. Um, so, you know, I knew I was, I was telling Dr. French when I was sitting down with him, I knew that the hardcore fans were going to buy the book regardless. People like me were going to buy a book like this. Right. Um, so what I did in in sort of how I went to approach this and thought about it was what makes my book unique in the landscape of books on the Almond Brothers, just mm-hmm. for then at that point. Um, and, and, and then really, as I spent a lot of time over many years reading other books on the subject, 
not the Allman Brothers as much, but music, culture, art, how music, arts, and culture intersect to then construct in my mind how I might, you know, tell a story. And I remember vividly when I went, when I made the choice to go the route that I did, I was talking to a friend of mine, um, a historian who was on faculty at UCF when I was still living in Orlando working here. He's my age, but never took a class with him. But, um, you know, he said to me as I was constructing the narrative, he said, I said, I want to put a little bit of myself in here where I feel is appropriate because I think it makes books like this more interesting to the reader. His comment was, I prefer it when I don't know who the writer is. And I thought on that and it was a decision for me to say, you know what? I'm going with my own instinct on this one. So like, as you asked the question, how did I come up with that? It was an evolving process, but part of writing and you're going to learn this in this discipline and anybody else who is in it, you're constantly learning new ways to convey information. And I surprise myself sometimes with how I do it. Not look, there are words and phrases in that book. I'm very proud of. Uh, I posted one on Twitter not too long ago. Like, like I was like, sometimes I come to a phrase and I'm like, I can't believe I wrote that. Oh my God. And one time or two times I'm like, geez, did I come up yeah. with like that little phrase <laughs> right. or whatever? So, you know, uh, you know, when I, when, when he said that to me and said like, I prefer not. And I was like, yeah, but I actually prefer you include the voice and you know what? I'm the writer. Exactly. I can do this. Yeah. And then it's up to the, you know, the uh, the series editors, the reviewers, if if I pulled it off, which they said yes, with some, you know, some caveats and some changes. But um, number one, I had I wrote that preface last. That was pretty much the last thing I did or toward the end. Mm-hmm. Once I had figured out the context and content of the book, I was like, all right, let me let me share with you my approach. That was literally what it was. And that sort of helped me to say, like, look, I did my best to navigate this line. The other thing is, too, um, I say this to you as a budding writer and scholar. Most critiques of your scholarship are basically formal critiques outside of your professors uh, are basically people complaining that you wrote something different than what they would have written. So I, if, at the end, I literally address that part, too. And, and I get it. There will be critiques of my book, of my style, of anything else. I understand that. Um, by the same token, I think what we owe each other in the field of, um, you know, of discourse is maybe to approach people in the manner in which, you know, like like um, talking about, you know, approaching it as this is what you did well, not this is what you missed, because it's something I would uh, gender and sexuality, by the way, I didn't touch. One of my editor's um, friend who I hired um, was a gender and sexuality and, and uh, historian, and she and I wrote about it. She was marking some things, and I said, Sue, I'm just not – I don't feel qualified to speak on this right. more than just this. So, like, I had – but there will be people who will approach this work, I hope, with that in mind and can extrapolate that and do their own research. I'm – you know, that's what we're supposed to be doing in the unending conversation. So mm-hmm. – I, I don't, uh, there's a long answer to your question. I don't know if I really touched on what you wanted to. No, you, you did. And first thing that was coming to my mind as you were saying your answer was, as a reader, I definitely appreciated the fan's voice, like your voice in it. And and I also appreciated your that you were very candid about it in terms of, hey, you know, I, I'm trying to walk this line between historian and fan uh, as carefully as possible. But... Um, 
at the end of the day, I am a hardcore fan. Yeah. And, you know, the story is going to be a little bit unbiased. And that's not to say that it takes away any of the value that you could get out of it. And, you know, as a reader, um, I'm very honest. You know, I didn't know who the Almond Brothers band was before I interacted with you. I'm being 100% honest. Uh, kind of shows my age. But it's, it's okay. Yeah. They've been off the road for a yeah. long ass time and they were yeah. a bunch of, mostly old guys for most of your life. You right. Know? Yeah. I understand it. Yeah. It's, when and then when they got off the road, I was thirteen years old. Yeah. So there there you go. But um but now I'm I'm a fan. You know, so like you so if that if that doesn't say anything, if if the one thing anyone could take away from this podcast, that's what you could take away. You know, that I was totally new to this subject matter and you got me. You may listen, I've been on the road for a week and a half or so, uh, just driving on my own dime, uh, selling books and meeting friends and stuff. And you literally just made my day. Um, look, I, I'll, I'll say this. Uh, I'm, I wasn't trying to convince anybody of anything, right? Except right. the only, the only point was if you want to understand why this album at Fillmore East or why Dwayne Allman, what Dwayne Allman was trying to do, why this album, like, here's here's what you go. The other thing was, I find this story endlessly fascinating. I could riff on, like, you could throw me all kinds of stuff and I can connect this to all kinds of themes that I learned in graduate school, undergrad, and just in life. Um, but my goal was to say, like, this is, I find this story interesting for this very reason. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, I hope that um you know you can get sucked in because i love this i love the music first then the, then as i found the story i'm like jeez man this is just endlessly fascinating to me yeah i'm a southerner uh-huh. i'm a generation behind these guys these guys are about my mom's actually yeah they're more or less my mother's age um where my mom chose a different life of a straight life as a housewife and literally that was the term she used stay-at-home mother mm-hmm. we use now but mm-hmm. um you know these guys and the women that they were with they had a whole different life and a whole different thing. Um, but it was, it was close to me, right. you know? No, for sure. And so, yeah. So I think that's why you ultimately succeeded because I came at this at a very uh, unknown, you could say, uh, point of view. And now I'm, I'm glad it didn't bore you to tears because that's, no. you know, these books can do that too if you don't well, like the subject well, matter. Well, that, that's why I'm applauding you of, Thank you know, you. going through, going with your own intuition of just sticking through, sticking with your guts in terms of the fan's voice, because I could relate, you know, I, I didn't know this band, but, you know, and I literally would write it down as I'm reading the book. It's like, this is like, if I ever wanted to write an NBA book, you know, I'm a huge basketball fan. And if I decide to do a history of the NBA, you know, I would take a similar approach because at the end of the day, yes, you're writing to, you know, an academic audience, but at the same time, this is a love letter to the fans and the fandom. So I, I, you know, I appreciate that. Um, and I, and I'm going to take that compliment for what it is. Uh, one of the things that I did that I felt the other books on this band didn't do is, um, I really did bring the fan voice in where I could. So we, the, the books that exist now, this, now I'm going to nerd out on you for a second, no, right? Please do. Um, the other books are great. Uh, frankly, the, uh, Midnight Riders that Scott Freeman wrote in the 1990s, um, uh, Alan Paul wrote a book called One Way Out that published in the tw- 20, early, I think it was 2011, maybe it was 2014, but, but either way. And then Galadriel Alm and Dwayne's daughter wrote a book. So we have these books, but they're very personal stories of the band, individual interviews with, they were journalists, all, actually all but Galadriel, the other two were journalists and they approached the subject differently than what I would do, um, which is fine. They worked their own sources from a personal level. I was working in the archives. I was working in, you know, um, the mostly digital archives. 
And what was introduced to me, what, uh, there's a passive voice for you that somebody would kill us, right? Um, Chris McCusker at MTSU introduced me to what's called reception theory. I don't know what, I mean, theories always baffle me because you have to remember a theory, then approach the work, right? right. But essentially what she said was, uh, it would, she, she never defined it for me, which a good professor won't do, right? Mm -hmm. they'll, they'll sort of say like, look, is art, is music, uh, 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 she sort of boiled it down to if you're producing it for something, it's different than if you're just producing it for yourself. So you've got to bring the fan kind of pers perspective in where the two merged for me was was when I went from just documenting everything I could in a dissertation to writing a book and really honing in on or uh, you know honing the messages this is what Dwayne and the band wanted to do and guess what this is exactly what they accomplished because the fans you know that's the response the reception so adding that element into the mix I did, it wasn't even intentional that like my voice went in there right. you know but the book is called Play All Night. That's from a quote yeah. where a fan yells out mm -hmm. in, a, in, a, in the thing. And you can hear it clear. You've clearly heard yeah. it. Yes. Yeah. It's an exciting moment yeah. captured brilliantly. Mm -hmm. And it's a fan who can't stand it anymore. And right. he just has to say it because the music <laughs> yeah. is super quiet. Yeah. Yeah. No. And we'll, and we'll get into that. Yes. To that thank moment. you. Yeah. For My sure. My man did his homework. Yeah. God, I love it. Um, so uh, you initially went into this process with the goal of understanding Dwayne Allman's influence uh, on American music. But then you quote, this ideal attracted me and still does, but a historian has to work with his sources and those just weren't there. So can you elaborate on that a little bit? You know, I, I really, I guess the issue is, is um, you know, pre great is a matter of preference, right? And so I think Dwayne Allman is the greatest thing since sliced bread. I think the Allman brothers did things nobody else did. Um, but to call them the greatest or influence in all these ways is really difficult to do because, because at, and this is where a friend of mine, Spencer Downing from this university, uh, who I met, um, uh, you know, he's the one who really shaped a lot of my understanding of this. And what he, what he told me, uh, what he helped me understand was, um, you know, the, 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 the difference between, um, being able to say like Dwayne is great and being able to say Dwayne was trying to do this and it resonated like that was the piece he helped me understand. So in instead of a laundry list of all these quotes about why this dude is great. Well, you know, his, of course, his contemporaries are going to think that I can cherry pick any source I want to mm -hmm. say that. Right. The, the question is, you know, what do you do with your sources? And the sources actually are saying essentially, man, these guys are great. But when you and then. But when you listen to the records, it doesn't match up, mm -hmm. right? Right. And and so nobody bought because the concert business that we know today is different. And you're running. I mean, listen, bands at their level are always going to run on the margins, you know. But you were running on the margins to catch the break to get a hit on the radio and sell. And their music wasn't, you know, wasn't tuned to that. Right. I think that is among the reasons it makes it great, right? Is mm -hmm. that it's not radio friendly. I don't prefer radio hits and stuff right. like that so fast forward to like how do you put this together in a book this mm -hmm. is really what it is right nothing said i mean yeah plenty said he's the greatest ever but you know what does joe schmo know about a, you know any of us could mm -hmm. be the greatest ever if right. that's my only thing so i had to not hurting joe schmo because joe was a guy like you mm -hmm. writing in college newspaper mm -hmm. he just 
his concept of what he's listening to is very is 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 very myopic if you will mm-hmm. so finding what he says or she is mostly he mm-hmm. versus what Dwayne and Dickie and all these guys were saying they wanted to do that was where the magic happened to put a narrative together make sense yeah okay. no yeah definitely made sense you look like you're following me but I could be blah, blah, blah. no 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 I'm following you and I and, and you know I'll tell you if I'm, I'm not following or can you gotcha. explain that yeah okay um so you you talked about this in your first answer, um, which makes my job easier. So. <laughs> so so thank you. But uh, yeah, you make a clear distinction that you know you wanted to do something different with this book. You know you noted that there was three biographies yep. on the ABB and two on Dwayne, and you state that your book in particular is more of a biography of Dwayne's music, and that at Fillmore East is the pinnacle embodiment of his vision. Yep. So. Um, what was your your you know your your train of your train of thought going into that yeah so so um you know the first thing a press will often ask you to do is how is this different than anything else right. you know so um i will say it's not a comprehensive biography of Dwayne Allman um uh, those have been written and and the and the story of the Allman brothers in this era and otherwise has been really well documented do i think a, a book like that you know, we'll always have a place in the marketplace and sell or should. Absolutely. I think it's a really great story. Um, you know, but but I had to think about what it was I want to say. Now, now we'll we'll get a little deep in the content. You know, yep. um Dwayne Dwayne died within a couple days of them getting notice that the record had hit gold at Fillmore East. So that's five hundred thousand copies. It sold in about six weeks. A band that hadn't really sold much. I, if they sold a hundred thousand of their first two albums combined, it it would be a shock to me. I think it was in the in the like eighties or nineties. Like it was low. Yeah. They didn't sell much. Right. Um. So, the. This this was an all or nothing um, option for the band and for Dwayne. So the question the question that could be proven is essentially like, what was Dwayne Allman trying to do with music? And then when everything was on the line, so, you know, fast forward a bit, they had two failed albums. I don't know how much of this you'll get into later, but this was their make or break. Um, There were discussions about breaking up the band because they were too musical. One of my favorite quotes in the book, because, I mean, that just says everything you need to know about the music industry at the time and really in general, this Mm -hmm. is how it is. so that was an issue that goes into this. What does the band say they want to do when it's all on the line? And then they, they go and they record live. And here's the thing about live records, and I touch on this in the book and I will always talk about it. Most of the live records you're hearing um, from that era are very heavily fixed up in post-production. Um, some of the most famous live albums in history uh, are, are fixed up. Um, I think they probably went in with the intention they would fix a few things up in post. I, I, I see nothing that says otherwise, but or that says that, but but it was common, right. you know. Um, every note on that thing, 76 minutes, I think it is 78, 78 minutes, yeah. is live. Yeah. Um, they played different versions of every one of those, um, all of them but one over that weekend. It's available. They're all different. They're not completely different. But they're different. Um, so, what what I what I was really fascinated with too was um, was the sound, right? What that because that's what grabbed me in the first place, right? I was living in 
uh, Forest Highlands. I don't even know if it's still there anymore. Uh, I was, I think I was living in Fox Hunt when I first got the the CD, and uh, I remember going, Jesus Christ, what is this music? Like this is. Uh, same maybe same kind of stuff you did like god dang they're just doing stuff and i play music right back then not very well and so it was intimidating but it was like inspiring and so um what i decided going into it I, this is a long answer to your question why i stuck with with um you know the sound one is other people had done all this stuff they had told the story over and over again um as you dig deeper into this band, like you should read more on the Layla sessions and how he influenced Eric Clapton. And um, it was a big deal for Dwayne. But to me, right, my story, as I say in the book, was really Layla was important, not just because Dwayne did it, but because he said no to Eric Clapton to stay with this band mm -hmm. that was touring in a Winnebago. Mm -hmm. So then the other reason I wanted to stick with the music, well, one is, I wanted to see if I could do it. Um, it's hard to talk about music, you know, um, but I spend a lot of time doing it. So can I can I put something down on paper that does it? The other is it keeps you away from the ugly parts of the story, the sex and the drugs in particular, the the music. I mean, sorry, the money issues. Um, the Almond Brothers were very successful. Were were not very successful in the era I studied. You know, from a financial perspective, so things are all sort of working toward something. Um, but shortly after Dwayne dies, Barry Oakley dies. Then, then um, you know they have a the brothers and sisters this million selling record that puts them as the best band in the land. Then Greg marries Cher, and just everything kind of falls apart. Money problems, and so to go with the sound well i could track that yeah. i could track how songs entered their repertoire how they influenced the ultimate sound it was an interesting way to deconstruct and you know put the story together um so it was a it was a rhetorical conceit right it was like i'll do a musical bi a biography of a sound right uh and then it was because partially because i want to stay away from because other people have done it number one mm -hmm. and number two i don't really want to talk about sex and drugs and that's completely fair. not in a book, right? Yeah, 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 no, for sure. And I think you you did the best you could in terms of describing such a unique style of music. Because at the end of the day, music—if you're trying to—the best way to explain music is just to hear it, it's to listen to right, it, right? To listen to it. Yep. And once I got hooked into the story, I literally took a pause from reading, and I'm like, okay, let me let me actually go listen to this and see what he's trying to convey through the pages. And my man, like, like, again, you did a really good job doing it through the pages. But of course, nothing compares to when you actually listen to it. And I mean that in the best way no, that's, possible. It's true. I mean, that's the, that's the way you that's what I like too, right? Right. right reading or writing that makes me want to listen to it. Yeah. Um, I while I was finishing up the, the final draft last summer, I did a, a exhibit project for a museum on Curtis Mayfield and the impressions. And Curtis Mayfield actually did influence Dwayne um, uh, and stated you know in 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 the stuff actually i don't know if i slid it back in the book i might have been done by then but i remember i'm listening to this curtis mayfield track and i'm like holy shit that's that Dwayne's totally pulled that from yeah. that you know like that sort of stuff so it you know me even approaching music and listening because it, it is kind of how i roll right um and and for your listeners like he's not i don't think he uh sebastian's blowing any smoke here he's no. being very nice to me and we're enjoying each other's company but um, you know, he didn't set this up. It seems pretty genuine. And, and, you know, my goal was, this is an interesting story it is. because of the music, yeah. the music is what drew me in. And then yeah. as a historian, um, and at the 
time I uh, uh, encountered this, I wasn't a historian. I was just a stoner college student, yeah. you know, um, here on this this very <laughs> campus, not in this building. It didn't exist. <laughs> but but, you know, all, all kidding aside, like it was it was that it was it was that moment, like you said, how it sort of all flows. Uh, and it's all the you know what my my dissertation advisor told me when I sat down with him. He goes, "It's about the effing music." Right. Like he just and so I'm I haven't heard yet back from him yet if he's read it. Right. But I'm I'm imagining most people are going to have that reaction. I'm hoping yeah. your reaction. Yeah. You know? No. And you know and and I'm not blowing smoke. What I tell people and people that know me, they know I say this a lot. It's it, it takes too much energy to be fake. You know, I, I, right on, I, brother. I, I, I like that. I can't. Yeah, it's just too much. You know, I'm always going to be sincere and genuine, and I try to, and I uh, format this podcast the way so mainly because that's who I am as a person, but out of respect. You know, like it just there's no other way to do it, at least in my just, how my mind the, works. You know, I think one of the keys to being a good host in these these sorts of things, or to being really a good citizen or human being, is just to be interested in other people. I am, uh, and it comes through. It very it like yeah. like. Uh, it's funny because, you know, you look at something you're like, oh, this, you know, eager undergrad, like, yeah. oh, he's going to, you know, and you you came to me, and, you know, it was immediate. And I was like, yeah. dang, nice. Yeah. He read the book. <laughs> he liked it. I'm sorry you didn't get a paper copy. We're going to rectify that when we're done. Um, so you even read a digital copy, even yeah. though that's not your preference. Right. So like, no, I, yeah, I like it. No, for sure. Can't nothing can't stop this, you know. So. Um, all right. So my next question is, you know, and this is a very important one. So I'll. As I was reading the book, I always found myself writing down and highlighting that at the center of this grand story was um, from the first chapter to the last chapter and all the interesting anecdotes in between. It's about Dwayne Allman. Yes. And, you know, I know you did that intentionally, but I want to know more behind that decision for me and for our listeners. The, so when I wrote the dissertation, um, uh, and I'll say this to you going into this and any anybody who's listening who's st struggling with this. Um, the only perfect dissertation, the only perfect thesis is a finished thesis and a finished dis dissertation. OK, so um, I can't say that any anymore to you going into this. Like it is frustrating to get to that level, to put all those words down and to not feel like it's really, truly locked down that you just feel, you know, some some of us, it, it was the end thing. You know, this was not the case for me with this project. Um, so the 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 piece that I was told, Chris McCusker again. It, so uh, in history graduate school, you defend your work in front of your committee, um, which literally means you sit in there and read, and or you sit in there and they ask you a bunch of questions. And um, it's usually perfunctory, but it is a little scary. Right. And they shake your hand at the end. Congratulations, doctor. And you're like, yeah, I did it. You know, <laughs> but Chris said in there, she, she said to me afterwards, she goes, I have no critiques really about this, um, blah, blah, blah. She just said, just make it more about Dwayne, which was really good. So 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 that was a, a key point. And when when you when you pull up the first of all, first of all, why was it? Why was it about Dwayne? And the easy one is because it is like that's that. And, and, and as a historian. Uh, jumping into this story that a lot of people have told, how, you know, how do you approach it from a more unique perspective? Now, you haven't seen any of this other, and I'm, I am banking on the fact that new people are coming to the book and able to do it. So I had to establish it in my way. Right. But the bottom line is, I think more than anything, um, you know, at Fillmore East, as I say in either the introduction or the preface, I can't remember, but um, that's why we remember the Allman yeah, Brothers Band. If that album had not broken... 
and he died, it would have been, wow, this amazing dude, these few things he did, right. you know. But the band outlived him by 43 years. So to me, now this gets into material that I didn't, I said in the book, you know, my core argument was really about Phil Maurice, but right. I said in the book, like, the band is his legacy. Yeah. And I have been a part of that story for the latter part, the last 25-ish years of, of their existence in a new lineup and several new configurations. But they were always saying from that point forward, we want to go back to that sound. Mm-hmm. You know, and bands do. They they adjust and morph their sound. Change happens. Right. Uh, and they went through a period of time where they really tried to update their sound and be a little disco-y and stuff, and it was a disaster, <laughs> you know? So he is at the center story because he is. And, you know, you get to the epilogue. I was really careful with that one. I wanted to put some quotes in there from contemporary members of the band who also and and i i mean i didn't cherry pick these quotes i just picked the best i guess cherry picking is you pick the best quotes right but it's not as if oteal burbridge or warren haynes or alan woody or Derek trucks mm-hmm. haven't been saying this for years right you know it's part of why they respect it so much they're part of an uh, an institution an american institution not just and it was a living thriving band <laughs> like yeah. that's you know so he the why Dwayne it's the it is the you know the conceit around the story right. um but but more than that it's really where the story begins mm-hmm. but like we know about history no one person yes changes history for sure mm-hmm. but he had to get other people to join him on his journey yep. and they had their own path yeah so I didn't track as much of those other paths just because it's a lot to do yep. you know Dwayne was a guy you know it's why chapter seven sort of pivots where. That's where those other characters come in. Here's their backstory to establish why they fit so well. But Dwayne's struggle for fame or for, it, you know, I, he had fame. It's hard to say. Dwayne struggled to make it in the marketplace, to make it as a, yeah. as a successful musician, is really the story that we track. Those guys come in and then they take this dream and keep going, as you know from the story. Yeah, <laughs> yeah no, and, and, I think, and I think that's fair because you, you – you mentioned it in the book and you mentioned it now, you know, it's, it starts with Dwayne, you know, and these other characters, uh, get involved, um, midway through the story, but it, it fits. So I guess the word I'm looking for is like organically, yeah. you know, it's not forced. It's not like, Oh, where did these guys come from all of a sudden? Right. No, it's like, we're looking at it through, you know, Dwayne's walk yep. essentially. Yeah. So, um, damn, you're good, dude. <laughs> this guy, hire this guy, whoever's listening, man, this guy's a great interviewer. <laughs> Um, I'm not shitting you. This is good stuff. <laughs> I appreciate you. I really do. Um, I'm genuine too, by the way. No, I can. I know. I, know, I, I, I have a good. I I always tell my closest friends and people that I, I have a pretty good sixth sense on good radar know, for yeah, that shit. Ra- yeah, yeah, me too. Me too. Yeah, so I, I could definitely feel it from here, you. I know? like my people. I get shout out to my sister who's always you know she's kind of like the vibe person. So, nice, yeah. <laughs> nice. Um, What's your sister's name? Lorette. Lorette. Yeah. Shout out. <laughs> Peace. Yeah, for sure. Um, so can you explain uh, to our listeners uh, the central themes um, in the book? And there's way more, you know, as I personally read this book that I don't know if it was explicit or implicit, but definitely what I got out of it. But there's three in particular that you explicitly mentioned in the preface of the book. And that's um, this This was stated within the context of the release of At Fillmore East in July 1971 and the massive success thereafter, which you say, quote, how this happened, why this happened and why it's important are the central themes of this book, end quote. Can you expand on that? Okay, that's, wow, great question. So, so you know, the, the, the I, 
I'm guessing, uh, you know, that that is a <laughs> that's a really loaded statement, right, that an author would put up front. Right. Yeah, um, it is. And and, uh, you know, this was probably more than anything, my attempt to um, to to force myself to look at these things and you know making sure that these are these are the points I'm always going for right how mm-hmm. why and why it's important I mean it, it goes all the way back to um, you know fundamentally I'm an interpreter I mean I'm a teacher I teach a lot um, but I'm also you know an interpreter of ideas what a teacher is right an mm-hmm. interpreter of ideas or content so um, you know I will say I probably not probably I'm certain I wrote this at the very end um, I'm also 100% certain the how, why, and why it's important was something I had going into it because that's how I write. I think the whole thing about history um, as a discipline um, is the facts are just really, to me, boring without some context and without some understanding of the why. Why am I learning about, for example, time zones? I agree. Right? Oh, because the railroad dictated that so they could, you know, oh, and then why then, why is this little piece of the railroad, whatever it is, right? Yep, I agree. So the why has always got to be there um, for me as a a teacher um, and as an interpreter, you know. um, You know, the history has changed over time. History is if then. um, And it's a historian looking at primary sources and saying this is what this means so that's what the why or why it's important you know like there's other people who will go other directions galadriel allman in her amazing book called uh, please be with me about her dad you know she went with the personal connection between her dad and her mom her relationship with her father who she never knew and she really told a great job with the women's story because there's a you know there's there's women who were left behind in this story right you know um and there's two widows, uh, you know, from the, there's more widows than just two, but there's two that were immediately widowed, you know, um, and the guys went off and did their thing like marauding pirates that they were, and they did come home to this like little household, you know, um, I think Macon staying, so, you know, those three points are important. There's five that really all come together. Dwayne being the centerpiece, mm-hmm. the South, um, the fact that they could stay in the South and do this. And, you know, the book, I'm sure we won't get too much into this, but in the late 60s, early 70s, the idea was you had to leave the South to make it. Yep. And the Allman Brothers said, no, we want to stay in the South. So the South is important, and that's home, and that's where the women were. I mean, their their wives and mm-hmm. girlfriends and mm-hmm. families were. Not, right. I, I sounded more nasty than yeah. I meant there, but that's yeah, where yeah, their yeah. families yeah. were. Yeah, for sure. Um, his bandmates, you know, the... the any band, mm-hmm. Sebastian, any band, you take one of those key people, one of those people out at the founding and it's going to sound different, period, end of story. So you really can't say if it wasn't J-Mo, but it was instead just Butch, or if it wasn't Dickie, but it was Dwayne and Barry and, and J-Mo, I'm getting deep in the story, mm-hmm. right? You can't really do those counterfactuals, right? Right. So the bandmates were really important. Uh, the music industry, um, I think uh, it's hard to understand what the music industry was then versus today. Right. Uh, the one constant is that artists are getting screwed on their on their royalty rates. Mm-hmm. You know, I listen to a lot of Spotify, um, and and I I'm it, I need to switch off of it for that reason yeah. because. But it's the same thing. The music industry had to get behind it, and then the fans. Mm-hmm. You know, which we've talked about before, but you know, reception. Yeah. Uh, is anybody there to listen to it and pick up on it? Oh yeah, yeah. You know, 
Not a lot of, of, of stuff. Like, there's not a lot of people who went home and wrote in their diaries. I saw the Allman Brothers for free at a park and blah, blah, blah. So that was harder to find. Yeah, for sure. I, I get a lot of a lot of people now, you know, saying, oh, we saw them and they were this and they were that. And they, how do we know? You yeah. know, like, like, you just have to be careful with some of that stuff. No. I, I had to learn that too. Definitely. And, you know, again, coming back to the what we were saying in the initial, um, at the beginning of the podcast, where, you know, I'm coming at this not knowing anything right. or anyone. So this leads to my next question where I really appreciated as a reader personally, um, the attention to detail you know of like the 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 when you needed to give historical context and you didn't always interject it constantly throughout the story where it kind of would have been exhaustive you did it when it was appropriate you know there wasn't a, a time where you know and I would write it and I would literally write it down it would be like my blue color to to kind of denote that where I was like oh this is at the perfect time because I'm kind of lost you know, like when you were bringing up the Grateful Dead. Yep. You know, like I didn't know who Grateful Dead was. That's and so it, funny. I can't imagine, yeah. but I understand it. Yes. Yeah. Go and, ahead. And, and, you know, and you'd always bring them up because they were kind of the contemporaries of the Almond Brothers band, especially the original era. Yes. And, um, and you'd always bring them in the story right when I was like, oh, I really needed the context, the historical <laughs> yeah. context. And not just of that specific band, but of the the broader trends and trajectories of, of rock and roll in the South or in the country in right. general. I, I, I think I know the part you're talking about too. And um, I'll tell you where that came about. Uh, I, I, you know, there, there's several points. There's one point when I say, once again, the Grateful Dead served an exemplar. And that's mm -hmm. what I'm talking about, mm -hmm. sound. Uh, and that was a magic moment um, when I listened to the Grateful Dead's album called Live Dead. And I heard the song Dark Star, for which the Grateful Dead are very famous. And I heard Phil Lesh play bass. And I was like, oh, my God, that sounds just like what Barry Oakley does. Now, I'm a guy who listens to the dead, but not to that extent. Right. There's another piece, place where I know where I did it, where Sue wrote me. So uh, a friend of mine named Sue Ferentinos um, edited. I paid her my uh, uh, stimulus money, my relief money that they gave us in the spring. And I took my whole manuscript to her and I said... Um, you know, like, let's go through this. And I, you know, and she's the one at different points said, cut this, beef this up. So she, we had this whole section That's nice. where she said, you need to step in here and add some context to the cultural, countercultural mm -hmm. scene. And I went back and um, what's really cool about this, Sebastian, nobody, nobody knows it. One of the sources I used um, was an article from July, 1967, uh, Time Magazine had a cover story on the hippies. I had used that source in seventh grade in like 1984-85 on my very first paper on the hippies in seventh grade. Wow. So I went back and, I, and then I was like, oh, like I can do more of this, like slide these yeah. little, little Easter eggs in for me. So I ended up oh, doing a couple awesome. of paragraphs on the counterculture yeah, writ large. Mm -hmm. Which gives me a chance for us as Southerners and, you know, uh, living in the South to know it came later mm -hmm. because our culture is a little, it's different. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the California culture is, is similar, but it's different. And we are kind of spread out in the South, um, either very small urban centers and a whole lot of small towns in between. But we weren't what we are today, this, this megalopolis mm -hmm. in Florida or elsewhere. There's a lot of, you know... Um, things are few and far between uh, in terms of like getting to places and, and, and doing stuff. So it was the idea of saying, you know, um, you know, we'd never say the Allman Brothers were the Southern version of the Grateful Dead. Um, that's not true right. because they weren't trying to be. Exactly. But to the South, 
the Almond Brothers represent what much uh, what the Grateful Dead represented to that cult, their culture and their time. Uh, absolutely, one hundred percent. And they have a you know similar aesthetic and how they approach music. Right, for sure. And you know now that we're getting into the the weeds of the, the genre, you know, and specifically the genre tied with the the geography of where the Almond Brothers band comes from, which is the South. Um, I found it a really, I found it really interesting where, um, you know, the band members themselves didn't like the the term Southern rock, and that's Southern with a capital S. Uh-huh, yeah. um, but you state, quote, yet yeah, it became part of their legacy. Yeah. Um, I want you to explain that to me and to our listeners. Yeah. So, so this is a, this is weird um, because it gets on the verge of the fanboy line and of the general general understanding line. So, you know. The term Southern Rock, and I use it as a capital, mm-hmm. S, capital Southern, lowercase r, although you could capitalize the r, is a musical genre that record companies created in the mid-1970s. After Dwayne died, in the wake of the success of Fillmore East, um, the entire music industry started looking to the South for these rock bands that were down here that were making music like this. Prior to this point, a guy like Dwayne... Greg actually had to go to LA. He became Greg became the star as the front man. Mm-hmm. Dwayne had no fortunes because he wasn't as good looking as his brother, and and he didn't write songs or sing. Which you know, so the industry is sort of attuned this way. They come down to the south and they start signing a lot of bands. Leonard Skinner, among the most famous, also from Florida, from Jacksonville. Uh, the Marshall Tucker Band is out of uh, South Carolina. Wet Willie is out of Alabama. A lot of bands go to Macon where the Almond Brothers are headquartered. Mm-hmm. And so after Dwayne's death, uh, as Brothers and Sisters, the album they recorded and released in 73, um, gets out, somebody somewhere picks up that we should be promoting the band and others as this South Will Rise Again kind of concept. Um I, I touched I touch on this in the in the introduction um, as much as I'm willing to to you know get into it because it's really not my story. It happens afterwards. All right. of this happens afterwards. But Dwayne in Dwayne's lifetime, the state of Georgia has a flag that is half the Confederate battle flag. Um, you know there have been civil rights issues and and um, uh, conflagrations throughout the South in his lifetime. He couldn't go out to a restaurant in Muscle Shoals. Um, with Wilson Pickett, a black man, no one can really figure out if it was because of Dwayne's long hair or Pickett's skin, yeah. but a combination together was bad. So this right. is the South they grew up in. So from about 73 through, honestly, about 89, the Allman Brothers were, they carried this mantle of Southern rock. And again, it's it's somewhat hard to define. The best way I do it, although I'm never in love with this, is happens from about 73 uh, for the Almond Brothers until about uh, their album in 1990, but more like 73 to 79, 82 was their real big period with it um, as Southern rock, and that's what the music industry thinks about. The capital S and lowercase mm-hmm. r. So when the Almond Brothers were around, when Dwayne, when the Almond Brothers were founded, when Dwayne founded the Almond Brothers, they were not called Southern rock. They were regularly called Southerners. Um, but it really, Southern rock wasn't a thing, I think, partially because everybody knew rock and roll comes from the South. Right. So I have this quote from Greg um, Allman, and, you know, he has a lot of really pithy quotes that 
fit well, but his you might as well call it rock rock. Yeah, he did say that. Yeah. Um, so you know the the distinction for your listeners and for readers is mm-hmm. I'm writing about a period before that, and by the way, they started using the Confederate flag in it's about '74. Uh, at a time when they were an integrated, well, they were always an integrated right. band. So they've got their own complex affiliation with it because it was so common. Mm-hmm. I'm not excusing anybody, but, right. you know, we sure. were raised in schools that way, too. And by the 80s, the Duke boys, uh, Bo and Luke Duke, were driving the General Lee with a Confederate flag on the thing. And none of us thought anything of it because we it was the way that story was told to us. And I'm certain it's the same with the Almond Brothers. You know, like they just didn't think about it. Right, and then then to continue that that you know that thread, then years later, I think Greg was the one that said this, where his best friend was a black man, Shank Middleton. Yeah, and he's like, if that flag means, you know, something. If you with look slave- at that and you think about yeah. slavery. Yeah. then burn, burn every one of them. Exactly. So, I mean, if that doesn't tell you anything, then. Yeah. yeah, I think that, you know, they, they you know, for their use of the flag, which was a relatively small period of time that they did as a band, but promoters used it into the 80s. I think that they all recognize how wrong that was. And I think Greg's quote sums it up well. Yep. Um, they have a really good track record of not, uh, you know, they have a good track record on the race front. They've been playing black music and associated with black musicians forever. And one of their founding members is a black man. Exactly. So, you know, it it it's incongruous to us in 2022 and really wasn't 2000 either, right. often. You have this flag and these guys are out there, but it was, even those guys, I'm certain, paid no attention to it because it was everywhere, you know? Yeah, and also the fact that they were, you, you mentioned it in the book, that they, they weren't involved too much in in political trends or they, they were into like not a big extent they especially how artists not, are now correct and the, you know they did get involved in the jimmy carter presidential campaign they did play at the clinton inaugural balls and several of them have played in the obama white house um but no they they were not civil rights crusaders in the purest sense and it's you know jmo so they have a black for everybody's benefit one of their members is an african-american drummer who um now goes by the name jmo j-a-i-m-o-e and um, he's been really reticent to, you know, get into what his role was as a, you know, as a crusader. He absolutely says no. You know, I think this is one of those examples where a participant is, is um, you know, probably sees things a little differently than the rest of the world was. It's pretty remarkable. Right. That a band of Southern hippies is going around the world with a black man and a whole lot of white women, too. You know, like, I, and again, I'm not saying I have any problem with interracial anything. Mm-hmm. I'm saying the culture right. really frowned on black men with white women right. and to such an extent that there was a lot of extra legal murders and other shit happening. Mm-hmm. You know, um, it's a remarkable, remarkable story. So, yeah, it doesn't make a lot of sense in hindsight. Yeah. And I think they admit that, you yeah, know, for sure. And. Um, and then when you get into the, it w- it wasn't a specific chapter. I don't, I can't remember the specific chapter, but you were starting to talk more about, you know, and and that was one of the themes that I constantly came back to uh, that I that I could that was conveyed from the pages was the race theme, you know. Yeah. And um, I don't know who it was, but there was that incident at a restaurant an air an Ohio airport. Yeah. And they were messing first with the long hair, yep. which again was was also another theme that I you know found throughout the book. You know this long appearance, uh, people not uh, not liking the appearance because of you know traditional yep. uh, cultural trends or whatnot. And then they started messing with uh, 
Jamon. Yeah, with Jamo. With Jamo, sorry. And um, that's when Dickie Betts kicked the guy's ass. Yeah, and it started bleeding on the floor yeah. and stuff. I mean, you know, there's exa- you know, there's examples where like it, it just it's like you said, you said it good. You said it perfectly. You know, now looking back, it doesn't make any sense, but you know, there's examples with when they were in that era where yeah, they had their guys back. They you know, so, so one of the most harrowing experiences that they had uh was their arrests in Jackson, Mississippi, um Jackson, Alabama for drugs. And uh, it's it I've got it in the I think I've got it in the in the chapter one. Um, it's only a week after they recorded Fillmore East, they got lost and they ended up at a diner in Jackson, Alabama, in Podunk, Jackson, Alabama, and they got arrested for a pharmacopoeia of drugs on them, and they put all of the band in the black part of the jail with JMO, who frankly I imagine was absolutely scared out of his wits to be right. caught in that situation and that thing. I mean, he's never said it. I've never seen anything, but you know, I, I, I've read the story. I'm like, mm-hmm. I, I know this part of history pretty well. Right. Um, and I think, you know, you mentioned the racing. I think you cannot, you can't not discuss that element in American music, but particularly Southern music, because right. so much of it comes from African American culture. Exactly. Um, black musicians were creating a lot of music that um, was not making it into the mainstream. Uh, and then, of course, African-Americans were, were kept from all kinds of access to power and to ability to thrive, education, politics, you know, et cetera. My next question is uh, is not as a, a heavy hitter, but it's still one that's very interesting. Um, and this is just kind of you know like a, I love picking your brain so <laughs> so uh what was behind the decision of including a quote at the beginning of every chapter okay so uh uh that is a cool question let me write just a quote so I get back to it so um it's I there's two there's I noticed two ways that books like this go um there is a uh usually a vignette you can do a vignette so you tell a little story that represents the story you're going to tell in the chapter right um and then and then the other is usually you just dive into the story. Um, I sort of, th- that was my way of sort of maybe um, uh, uh, shooting the middle a little bit. Um, I, I like the quotes because of the power that they brought to, they distill that message down to something. This is, oh, that's what this is. I like books that do that too, mm-hmm. um, that kind of bring that up front. So, and then it was just a matter of picking the one that I thought was best for that moment. Yeah. You know? No, I, I, I'm also with you. I like I like books that do it. You know, um, bringing a quote that clearly embodies the the essence of the chapter that the readers about it's, to read. There's there's a million ways to construct that, right. right? Um, and and what I did as I start when I made the pivot to write the book from just you know as as I read, I was reading a lot more for style mm-hmm. than I was for any for content, which is weird for me. I'm a I mean I read super fast. I don't remember a whole lot of it. Like I have to. You know, ADHD has done wonders to me, you know, just trying to stay a little bit focused. And I mean, I've never been able to remember scholars names or individual arguments or even the names of their books outside of this small field I know. Right. But the ones that I like, like, you know, um, watching writers who aren't historians and how they attack things is another way to learn. And quotes are powerful, man. They are. Yep. And there's a, you know. And not just talking about the ones in the beginning of every chapter, but just there's a lot of quotes from the band members throughout the book. And I think I can't I don't know between uh, Dwayne and Greg, who has 
the best quotes. <laughs> uh, but their their quotes they were powerful. So so with Dwayne, of course, I have a very small segment of stuff. So I've got like a couple interviews. He did. well, I mean, it's it's probably less than twenty five sources all That's total. Crazy. So what and then and then what I was able to do and then this is something I did different. Um, you know, a lot of writers will say like as Sebastian told. You know, Fred at the USA Today on this date, boom. Right. Well, I would just say Sebastian said. Yeah. Because why do you need, you know, yeah. all, all that stuff to qualify my source? Well, I, I put a footnote there. Just just go find the damn source. Exactly. And I, I, a lot of jur- journalists are trained that way, and I don't fault them. They are used to qualifying sources in everything that they do. So mm-hmm. a lot of times they'll do that. Right. And a lot of um, uh, writers in this field, particularly rock stuff, so not just the Allman Brothers do that a lot like as Dwayne Allman told Hit Parader magazine and blah 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 well who gives a shit where he said it (laughs) exactly well I mean it's important I find it detracts me from reading I'd much rather just read the quote right yeah like as from a reader's perspective it definitely like it flows better just going through if I took all that as much of that out as I could there may be a few that I missed but that was you know because that's you know that's vital, and then you get back to the quote. So, like Greg, I'll say this: uh, there's, there's so much Greg has said. There's so many interviews. He's been famous, you know, since 1972. Um, he wrote an autobiography. Um, so it's just a matter of grabbing those quotes that work. Um, JMO's quotes were probably the most fun for me mm-hmm. because he is a, a um, as far as I've been told, he's probably from outer space. Um, he's an amazing, amazing. Uh, person I've spent little bits of time around him so his are fun because you can get some crazy quotes in there too like uh, 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 but but I had to piece this Dickie Betts was my interesting one so this is the piece now that you've gotten this granular in the quotes Uh um, Dickie left the band in 2000 so he you know he wasn't reflecting a lot on the Allman Brothers after that it's painful I get Mm -hmm. it but what I really stood out to me, and if, as you go back through when you get the paper copy, how Dickie felt about Dwayne's death. So those quotes that I say about that, and I think they're all in chapter one, um, are all called from about four sources over about 40 years. Wow. So meaning what I what I was really searching for was was the quotes that talked about how he felt about it. And he didn't open up a lot. Like it's, it, it, I have a quote that I use that I love and he, he calls it their partnership was like a man and a woman making love is the mm-hmm, term he uses. Mm-hmm. Now that's a really brilliant turn of phrase if you ask me right. um, because you can say all kinds of things for making love but that making love is a whole nother thing. Then he throws man and woman into it which is interesting because they're two dudes. Mm-hmm. Um, that's how intimate their relationship was, right? right. And so He's, there's another quote I used where he said, I used to have these dreams all the time that where were you? Where are you? Yeah. Oh, I've been in tour with Delaney and Bonnie. And yeah. then you realize he isn't on tour with Delaney and Bonnie. He's not coming back. Right. Um, I think it haunted all four of them. I, I mean, you know, my mother's, my brother, my own brother's death from eight years ago, uh, eight, two years ago, <laughs> you know, will always haunt me in a little mm-hmm. bit, right? Like, um, I think it always haunted them. And when you're an artist, whose job it is to, make music in a collective of people who've also gone through this same traumatic experience and your own art is being expressed. And you're, I mean, artists are, they're wired differently than we are. I mean, I'm an artist of words or, I mean, my medium is prose. Right. I'm not an artist in that I'm 100% in pursuit of my prose art. You know, I can, 
I can work for the man a little bit from time to time yeah. and write on the side. So I like those quotes came like all of those quotes, I should say, from any of the original members, the surviving four mm -hmm. come from a variety of sources. And I, you know, it was more or less picked the best way they said the point that they said over time because they all say the same shit. Uh, yeah. Like every famous person, not the Almond Brothers, anybody who has been in a situation like this, uh, you'll find this with the NBA too differently because you, you do have actual games you can go to but when yeah. you're talking about the memories and how they think about things they, they sort of formulate and they harden into a, a, a public consumption memory that they say mm. so then for me I just find the through line right and then build on that you know right. I mean I've already got an idea what I think about this yeah this is what they think maybe you know so it's it's a it's very intentional process um it's not something I would recommend doing um, part time. I was able to do it part time, you know, but it's it's hard to to find enough mo money to fill the, the 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 time you need to get the book done too. You For know, sure. yep. so no, the quotes were good ways to build. There no, you go. Yeah, yeah, they definitely were, and um, I had to stop myself from you know I was getting as I was getting um, throughout the, like reading the book like midway through I had to stop myself from highlighting every single quote <laughs> I like because, that because I'm like I mean I'm gonna it's gonna be forever to read this not just that it's just like they're all good you yeah, know and thank I thank you and at that point I was like you know what only highlight the ones that really like you know really knock your hair back exactly yeah, yeah. so and then I'm glad you mentioned because I, I was an ass up I'm not gonna ask that anymore that you footnoted everything and you also made that very explicit in <sighs> yeah. the in the intro or in the preface uh, of the book I fought with the press a little bit about that. They wanted me to take that little part out, and I'm like, absolutely not. Like, like, listen, I documented the shit out of this because mm -hmm. I expect you should expect yeah. to know where my information came from. Yeah, you said it all. Like, as a historian, this is what you should do. So, and and I, as a reader, I think yeah. it's up to us as readers also to be a little more critical about the way we approach our sources. That's a you know about the way we approach the world. Mm -hmm. um, there's my. There's my soapbox topic for another time. <laughs> what I was talking to earlier today on campus. I know, but I, I agree. And um, this is the last question of the process, um, which has been going beautiful. So I appreciate you. You're doing a good job. You're a good interviewer. Uh, thank you. I really appreciate that. Try my best. Um, so, you know, we've been we've been talking about this fan element in the book, and. Um, that kind of led me to this final question I wanted to ask in this process section of the pod where you say, quote, to my fellow historians, you will understand why I say this has been the most challenging book I have ever written. I did my best to walk the line between historian and fan carefully, end quote. So I want you to explain more as to why, even though probably within that statement, you could kind of get a sense of why it was the most challenging book. But, you know, I want to you know, have in front of you. You know, as well. I, the 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 sentence originally started. Um, here's here's why editors are important and your mm -hmm. friends like Sue. Sue, I paid her to do this. OK, right. I'm guessing she would have probably read it. For, you know, she wouldn't have gone to that level, granular level free, but she would have, you know, done that. But um, I did the preface toward that. You know, like I said, it was one of the last things I wrote and I wrote it and I sent it to her. And my original quote was something like, please forgive me for writing the book that you didn't write. And she said, never say that in the thing. This is your work. You stand on it and do. Why is it hard? Because, I mean, I had to distill 
a lot of information into something somewhat cohesive that didn't sound pedantic. And again, sounds like with you, at the very least with you, I did it. I did what I set out to do. Yep, you did. Um, and and so like it was hard because, you know, what do you, what do you say, right? Like one day, Sebastian, it was a blank cursor blinking on a page. Okay, and today it's a book. As of a week ago, Tuesday, right? Um, how do I get down to that point? Right. Um, and then the things I didn't do, you know, the, the, the angles I know I didn't pursue gender and sexuality being one of them. Um, I just did not know enough about the subject to really treat it justice. And I felt like gender had been done pretty well. Well, there's more to be done with this story and there's more to be done with gender and rock. There's more to be done with gender and, and uh, uh, the dynam gender dynamics, those sorts of things. Yeah, um, in that paragraph, in that same paragraph where, where I got this quote from, you ended by saying, you know, I hope you could perceive bingo. the gaps of in, the, in my research as avenues, you know, you could take. Which is the way it should be. Exactly. Right. So in my, in my opinion. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, uh, book reviews should be arguing on the merits of a book, right? Mm -hmm. Or, or um, not necessarily say this is a book. This is not the book I would have written. Is essentially right. what I'm trying to get around because, you know, like let's let's be a little nicer to each other in this thing too. And I realize I'm prepping myself for people to say I did something wrong or didn't do something. And um, I'm going to admit I'm a wilting flower when it comes to that stuff. So you know, but it it is it is. Uh, I think had I cared about this subject less, my, you know, my whole thing when I got into it, Sebastian was, I just, I was just really captivated by this story and I wanted to say more about it. Right. I wanted to tackle it in my own way. For sure. And, um, you know, and, and again, you know, like as, as a reader going into it, not knowing anything, um, it just made, it just made learning this history much more enjoyable and i you know i, I keep it and, coming keep it coming and, keep coming. i'm gonna close my eyes and just let you keep talking no, and, and, <laughs> hold on hold on <laughs> i'm in zen pose y'all <laughs> meditation pose keep it coming and, and correct me if i'm wrong but you know it's just another way of expressing you know your appreciation and for for the fandom and for the subject you know like going to this extent of writing a book and you know you know it's 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 funny uh alan paul who wrote um pretty much the definitive biography in the allman brothers band called one way out um and i are friends and we've we've worked together on that and um it, we've discussed this a tiny bit and i've thought about it a lot like my place in the fan in the you know i've been a fan so i could do actually document fan culture and that's that, one yeah. of those projects i'm thinking about at this point like um how did this fandom sort of become how it is? And, you know, like even the Southern rock thing, I'll tell you early on, uh, it was a big deal. Almond brothers aren't Southern rock. That's what fans used to say. Right. I should have said that earlier. They're not Southern rock. They came before and they never used the flag. So therefore, and sure enough, they did use the flag mm -hmm. and they were Southern rock. Right. I'm, you know, just because they predated it. Right. You know? And so those are the kinds of things that, you know, like as a fan, um, you know, and again, I'm a public historian by training too. So, so, um, you know, quotes are like an artifact to me, you know, like an, uh, an artifact in a museum should tell a story in and of itself. Exactly. Right? Yep. So, so using quotes that way or using music that way as a primary source for which to, to launch and tell a story. Um, so it is hard, right? Like it, this was, 
you know, one of the hardest things I've ever done in my entire life. Um, I have passed a kidney stone, um, which was pretty difficult too. But um, to get down to the essence of a story, one that I will never 100% be satisfied with because mm -hmm. all these other elements that yeah. I know yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that didn't make it in there. And constantly tinkering with yep. it. Yeah, yep. yeah, yeah, yep. yeah. And then the good point is like podcasts, these are good way to check on these ideas expand on them with you good good hosts are good about this and i'll speak tomorrow night um and ask a friend of mine so would you just interview me like this is so much easier for me than putting up a powerpoint and doing a doing a talk well yeah that that's my goal um not just with you but with every historian or author i get the chance and pleasure in meeting um is to know about those details that were omitted or you know yeah. like and just know more about what the page didn't allow you to do. You know, I'll give a, I'll give a prime example of something you'll know uh, from reading the book. The Almond Brothers set up a lot and played a lot of free shows in their early time. Uh, that was a way for them to kill time and to build an audience. Right. Probably to meet women and get drugs too. I don't know this for sure, but I'm imagining <laughs> that's part of it, uh -huh. right? But one of the places they regularly did that at was Piedmont Park in Atlanta. Mm -hmm. Um, Piedmont Park is part of the city beautiful movement of the uh, 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 of the I guess early 19 early 20th century um, and uh, or it predates city beautiful movement now that I think about it but either way Frederick Law Olmsted is who designed Piedmont Park uh, Olmsted also designed Central Park along with a whole lot of other things so now we have this connection between the Allman Brothers band and this famous American landscape architect um, as fleeting as it is, that connection, because they're not going to Piedmont Park saying, let's go to Frederick Law Olmsted Design Piedmont Park. What they're going to is a park that the city of Atlanta has designated as a place for people to gather. And they've created that park. They've, they've, they've thought about the park, not just a green space, but we're going to do this and that. We're going to bring in this famous person to do that. Mm hmm that's a tangent that is not in that book, yeah, but deserves not. chapters worth of discussion. Right, for sure. What had what did Americans do with these gathering spaces in the latter seventies or uh, latter sixties, early seventies? Like, how have things, you know, changed? Because that's what we've given the world is, uh, you know, a park. Here's a park. What the community chooses to do at that park is up to them and the powers that be, including right. saying no more music at parks or whatever else. That's part of it. But yeah, there's a whole story that is not in the book that I could go off forever on. Yeah. And I, <laughs> you know, and, and, and thank you for sharing. Cause yeah, again, that, that wasn't part of the book and you know, it's just, it's just as important, you know? So, um, all right. So let's, um, you know, segue into the commentary slash content questions. Sure. Uh, exceeded my expectations i'm just being 100 percent honest you know uh of your answers and the conversations we've we've been having you know it's been great so um all right so my first question for the content slash commentary slash history whatever you want to call it so let's backtrack and let's set the stage you know which this is why i know you're a great interviewee because <laughs> you, you've been you know saying a little bit of here and there as you know we've been going along with the process questions but let's backtrack so our listeners could better appreciate um, and understand the conversation we're about to have right now. So explain the years your book covers, explain the band members, not so in depth, but just who they are. Yep. And um, set the scene a little bit. Yeah. Set the scene a little bit. And then you could kind of go in the direction of, you know, what makes their style of music so unique and significant in that 
musical philosophy of hitting the note. Ah, nice. Yeah, yeah. HTN. Good job. Okay. Yeah. Well, let's start with the year. So we're, you know, the Dwayne, Dwayne Allman's born in 1946. He dies in 1971. So um, I pretty much go from about 46 to, to 73 in the narrative along with uh, all the way up to about 20, really spring of 2020 is when mm -hmm. I wrapped it up. But the, the bulk of those years are, are, are really going to be about 1965 to about 71. So Dwayne um, and his brother Greg Allman uh, start a band called the Allman Joys. Eventually, it's one of their latter bands. But they take to the road as this group called the Allman Joys in uh, summer of 1965 after Greg graduates high school. Uh, they go on a barnstorming tour throughout the Southeast. They have a, a recording session summer of 1966 in Nashville, one of the first places you go to break out. And uh, their single does very poorly. Um, they start to break up and then they join forces with some guys from Alabama, uh, Paul Hornsby and Johnny Sandlin. And they form a band that eventually is called the Hourglass. And they are moved out to California in the promises of wine, women and song. And, um, it's a miserable experience. I spent a chapter really writing about it. Yep. But um, the bottom line is Dwayne is really dismissed as an artist at every step of the way. He does not – He, they more or less fail all auditions, although in L.A. they, they got a record contract and they – but it was – it was the Greg Allman show. It really wasn't Dwayne. Right. Um, so as this is happening, um, Dwayne is becoming increasingly frustrated. He is uh, 20. Let's see. He turned 24 in 1970. 23, 22. So he's about 21 or 20 or so. And he quits this gig. I guess he's about 22. He quits this gig in L.A. And he shows up back south and uh, eventually signs on with Muscle Shoals and the music there is a whole documentary about it really well worth watching um but at the same time he's making a lot of money as a session guitarist uh becomes very famous when he records hey jude with wilson pickett wilson pickett for those of you who don't know the name necessarily um he did the song mustang sally which is a bar band song for years he also did a song called land of a thousand dances uh which is one of his big hits but he did the beatles song hey jude recorded this solo on it that just blistered and he got a contract he got a contract to do whatever he wanted he was in muscle shoals could have made all kinds of money was told hey you just hang around here you're gonna make plenty of money and his comment i think it's in the book i'm just not one of those laying around on my ass kind of people yep he wanted to form a gigging band he liked to play live he was great in the studio so he used his opportunity to start a new band right um, his brother's in L.A. Greg is in Los Angeles uh, trying to fulfill a record label contract. So he goes back to Jacksonville, Florida, where a happening music... Jacksonville, it's weird. Mm -hmm. A happening hippie music scene is going on, and it's surrounding Barry Oakley, um, who is in a band called The Second Coming with a guitarist named Dickie Betts. Uh, Dickie's from Sarasota, uh, West Palm Beach, and then like Sarasota area. That's where he comes from. Mm -hmm. Um Dwayne goes to Jacksonville. He knows Barry, and they have been talking about forming a band, but Barry doesn't want to leave his buddy, Dickie. Well, Dickie does the same thing Dwayne does. He plays electric guitar and lead guitar, mm -hmm. and everybody loved him. And Dwayne shows up to Jacksonville with a black drummer he brought with him from Muscle Shoals, J-Mo, mm -hmm. and immediately introduces them to a white drummer he'd been 
hanging out with over the years named Butch Trucks. He played in some bands with. And into this becomes these these five guys join a jam. Um, in, in They they jam uh, at a house in Riverside, 2844 Riverside Avenue in Jacksonville. Um, and Dwayne says to the group, anybody in this doesn't want to play in my band is going to have to fight your way out. So they had two drummers, which is weird. They had two lead guitarists, which is weird. Usually one guitarist played rhythm and one played lead. They were lacking a singer and a songwriter. And so Dwayne called Greg, and over the span of three days, the dates are a little fuzzy, but we go with March 23rd and March 26th because that's what they established. Greg shows up in this house in Jacksonville, and um, they immediately hit it off. And he wrote a bunch of songs. He'd brought some songs with him. Uh, Dreams, which is my all-time favorite Almond Brothers song. Um, and a song called uh, not, Don't Want You No More, Not My Cross to Bear, were two of the first songs they picked up from him that ended up on the first album. You mentioned their style. I mean, did you want to ask any questions about that soliloquy before I get into style? Um, I guess the one thing I'll, I'll you know, and you could, you could chime in on here is that this is where I started to find the theme of lessons learned from doing, you know, and especially when he went to LA, you know, he kind of got, uh, frustrated with yep. the music industry. You know, yep. they wanted to make, kind of make him, they something wanted to, he per- wasn't. exactly. They want to portray him something he really wasn't. And right. he felt uncomfortable with that idea. Yep. And you argue in the book successfully, in my opinion, that that really, formed his musical identity and vision yes. that he wanted to do later on. Yeah. So so when they go out to uh, I'll tell you this Sebastian, I I think that had the record company handled them well as in let them record the stuff that they knew, they might could have had a really big hit with them. Liberty Records had Canned Heat, which was a boogie blues band at the time. They had Johnny Winter who Dwayne gets compared to all the time throughout this era. They should have known better. Right. You know, what Dwayne did is he signed a really bad contract and the contract said, we get to make all the decisions. You're, you're screwed. And this is something my dissertation advisor had to, Van West had to really hammer with me was I was saying like, they just blew it. They blew it. Like my text. And he said, (laughs) he was a cover artist. He didn't bring anything to the table. So in the music industry, it was only, can you be the lead guy and write songs? Right. Um, and Greg is a really good looking fellow back then most through most of his, I mean, he was, he was a looker mm-hmm. and I think the record company recognized that Right. Dwayne did not have the same and he just said, screw it. I, I, and then going back to your, like, what was his choice? So they went back, they were on tour in spring of 68 and they recorded some demos at Muscle Shoals for everybody's benefit. A demo is basically you go in and you just lay the basic, it's a demonstration track. I, I think a lot of times a demo from there, I don't think many people build off a demo and do it. I think for the most part, you re-record all your parts, you write them, et cetera. So they go back with these demos that are just really driving rhythm and blues, blues, electric, southern soul. And the record company's like, this sucks, right? Because yeah. they were wanting to add all this crap in it right, and, right. and stuff like that. And so Dwayne said basically in the book, he says, F you, right? And he yeah. goes home and quits. Now, what happens that 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 fall? He quits in sometime in summer. Well, it's about September of '68, and then he gets to play on that Wilson Pickett session in in November of '68. 
And from there, he has a chance to start a band. And this goes back to, I don't want to do this again. I'm going to do it my own way. Right. I'm going to go get my own guys. And we're going to make something up new. Yeah. And what it was, and it, you know, there's a, the, the line Dickie uses, the band was so good, we never thought we'd make it. I yeah. think that that was a chapter header, which I think it is was. a great quote. Yeah, it was. Because um, it explains that. They, they, were, they were from the minute they played together, it was like, yes, this is what we've all been searching for. Right. Right. Not just Dwayne. Right. But all of them found their home in that. The JMO quotes in there about JMO went to Muscle Shoals because he wanted to hang out with a white guy and start making money. He yeah. says it flat he, out. Yeah, he does. White yeah. dudes are where you make the money. Yep. And as soon as he started hitting the skins, he's like, D- yep. Yeah. He forgot about the money. This is all yeah. I want to do. Yeah. I, I found that fascinating. I, I, I mean, I have to say like, and that he stuck with it all those yeah. years is like, yes, I totally agree with you. Uh, and. You know, I've played enough music over my life to right. know when that magic strikes, you hang on to it. You know, they were looking for it. He was already ready to starve himself as right. a jazz musician. Yeah. Might as well starve hanging out with these dudes. Exactly. He said something about, you know, if you're if you're going to starve, might as well do something. It's doing something you love. Doing something you love. Yeah. Yep. So, um, which I agree with that philosophy. Yeah. And so two things before you continue on. Um, now the band's formed, but two things. So my first thing is, and this is also another theme that I figured out throughout the book. Um, and again, I don't know if it was explicit or implicit, but something that I just got from reading it's how surprisingly Florida plays a huge part in this story. And, you know, you know, we're in, we're in, we're in Florida right now. Yeah. So call it what it is, but you know, it's, it seems like some of the most important milestones or achievements of the band happen in Florida. It's, it's so, so I'm a, not only a, I am a Florida native. Right. So there was a piece of the, yeah, I was attracted to this story as a Southerner and as a Floridian, specifically a Southerner from Florida. Right. Um, I'll say I wanted this to be much more Florida centric, like going wow. into it. I wanted to be able to say like Florida made this happen. Yeah. It's really the South. It's right. it's but 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 to say that don't don't discount that because I do want my fellow Floridians to find a lot of that within because it's this was home turf too. even after they moved, which was in in uh, probably April of 69. Mm-hmm. They went up to um, Jack's up to Macon. Mm-hmm. They left Jacksonville for good. Daytona Beach was still home base for Dwayne and Greg because right. her mom lived at 100 Van Avenue until she died in, I think it was 2014. Wow. Um, anyway, she died just recently. Um, Dickie Betts maintained a home in home base. Now he's down in, uh, I think, near Bradenton. Uh, Butch Trucks has lived in and throughout Florida. Much of He lived there and he was in Jacksonville. I mean, sorry, in West Palm when he died. They recorded albums in Miami. Miami, yep. Um, at Criteria, um, and they spent a lot of time in and in and around the Sunshine State, and and encountered all of the same big names that we all know that come out of here. Um, you know, Petty Tom Petty remembers watching him. The guys who all joined the Eagles remember watching them. Tom Ledden or Bernie Ledden and uh, um, Don Felder in in Gainesville. Um, you know, so so yes, that's the one of the things that, that I also and I was talking to Dr. French about this place. I think is a really important part of the the historian's toolkit and uh, and the public historian's toolkit. So being able to put place into this was definitely uh, uh, explicit, awesome. you know, yep. uh, intentional. Um, yeah. Where are these places and where they? Have? I mean, I've been to a lot of them too. For mm-hmm. that, that's just my nerdy side, right? You know. It's like going to the football stadium and touching the grass, right? Yeah. Like, okay, look, I've been here. Yeah. Where the triumphs happened or the tragedies. No, for sure. And so I'm glad, I'm glad, I, um, you know, my, I don't know, 
not superstition, but my train of thought was correct. Very much. No, no. Yeah. And, and, and frankly, uh, had it not been, I would have found a way to make it sound like it was, but, but no, absolutely. You know, I, it was definitely in Florida. It's, but it really is the South. It, right. this could have happened in, in Georgia and it really launched from Georgia, you know, uh, Mississippi, Alabama, any of those things. There's a lot of these stories out there. Um, and the bands that finally make it are the ones that sort of make it out of their hometown to regional touring. And then they followed that trajectory. They mm-hmm. dropped people as they moved levels right? because they were people that didn't want to go on a road and do this mm-hmm. crap anymore. For sure. And the second thing before you continue on is briefly explain some of the, the different uh, musical backgrounds that some of the band members okay. came with. And that's what ended like up what, like yeah the yeah. style the unique style and and kind of what makes it so they 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 came in with what seems like the idea that we're just going to see what happens based on our thing so you know going through the group Dwayne and Greg um, and J Mo were very uh, much in the rhythm and blues mode so they they had been basically cover bands and done that now J Mo was a backing musician. Uh, most famous guy he backed was uh, Otis Redding. He was on Otis's tours for a little while. Um, so, so you have these guys have a real, real hardcore rhythm and blues sort of thing. JMO was a jazz guy, loved jazz, uh, introduced it for the most part to the group, blew everybody's minds. Mostly just Miles. I mean, for sure, Miles and John Coltrane that for more at the beginning. Um, Butch Trucks is the second drummer. And Dwayne Dwayne has a pithy quote about two drums, which is uh, uh, J-Mo said, I, I asked him why he wanted two drummers, and and Dick and Dwayne said, because Otis Redding and James Brown have two drummers. Both of them soul, rhythm, and blues stars. They didn't use their drummers at the same time. They actually rotated them. Um, I think the better quote that he said, which is, which is uh, we knew we were going to be playing a long time and hard, and we didn't just have one guy flogging his ass off all night. So I think two drummers is one of the coolest concepts in rock. Doesn't yeah. happen very often. Um, it's like a marching band. Yeah. Uh, uh, and and those two really worked well together. Uh, so Butch now now back. Butch was a more of a rock and roll guy, but but very much into folk rock. So there's bands called the Birds would be the the Beatles played a lot of kind of folky rock stuff. Um, but he was also very much into classical music. Yes. And I think it, this is something, as I thought about each member, like one of the things to approach the book, if I'm going to stick to Dwayne, I got to talk about what these other guys, I think it's important to know how these other men brought to this thing. Yeah, I agree. Um, and Butch always talks about his classical influence, but when you listen to improvisational rock, it's hard to like, okay, what's classical about this? Right. Until you zoom out and say, they may not be prescribing movements on charts on paper, but they're doing exactly what orchestras do. And then he brings the timpani in too, which is a whole mm-hmm. other element there. Um, uh, Dickie Betts, Greg, Dwayne were all blues guys, as was Barry Oakley, the bass player, mm-hmm. all very much into the electric blues and into some um, acoustic blues. Dickie was a big country music guy. Uh, that manifests itself more as they get into the Southern rock era, but he writes and plays with a, a, a bit of a country bent to him. Right. Um, and then Barry Oakley, I think the final piece there, the bass player, he was a guitarist um, who also um, was really in a psychedelic rock, which is what the Grateful Dead were in mm-hmm. those bands. So, I mean, that's another piece that sort of throws in there. Like I had to define psychedelic rock versus jazz rock and, um, or versus jazz and, you know, 
I'm not sure I'm ever happy with that definition either, but the idea being psychedelic rock is very jazz influenced, but you add drugs into it right. to make a different something. Exactly. So they're each, they each bring something different. And remember, uh, as I said earlier, Dwayne doesn't write songs. Greg is a songwriter and Dickie becomes a songwriter. So he's got that element in there. Um, one of the things about music is the arrangement. So how do you make a song, a cover song your own? And that's what all these other guys kind of bring in. I, Dickie says it in there. Uh, Dwayne and Greg were very much, um, very into the urban blues. They were very tight with their arrangements. Oakley and I went sideways with it. Right. So the best way to say that is now that you've delved into the book, Hoochie Coochie Man is a, um, on their second album. If you listen to the Muddy Waters version, uh, the original version, I mean, it sounds nothing like how the Allman Brothers did. They went sideways with it. Yeah. You know? Yeah, they did. Psychedelic and weird and, and hard. Uh, you know, it's completely yeah. different. One of the things that fascinated me the most um, was the improv aspect. You know, that 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 just So when you listen that to that record, I, so I'll tell you, uh, since you're kind of new to this, when you listen yeah. to that record, I want to tell you, outside of the basic structure of those, but the first two are a little easy because they're about four minutes long. So you can, you can probably feel that, right. okay? When you get into that latter part of that record, I mean, they are in in some places. You can feel it when they're walking on a tightrope, and you can feel the soloist. The band is sort of pushing him, and he just says, "You know what? Screw it, I'm going." Right. You know, and then they're all just. It is 100% improv. That whole record. That's crazy. And by the way, there are no overdubs on that record. None, zero, nothing. They patched that. That you don't love me, which is 19 minutes, is two different versions patched together, uh-huh. and they pulled. A harmonica solo out of Stormy Monday. So that's, I mean, when you say that's crazy, that's literally one, you know, we're talking about one take here, right? right? One take in front of thousands of people, like a couple thousand people recording your last chance at anything, right? It just blew, it, it's blowing my mind right now and it blew my mind it, when I was reading it. I and mean, it, it's it, blown my mind for 30 years. Yeah. So welcome to yeah. the, welcome to the, <laughs> welcome to the club, Sebastian. I mean, we're glad to have you. I mean, I mean, no, it's, it's, yeah. I'm glad to be here because it's, it's just, you know, I, I appreciate that type of artistic talent. I appreciate excellence. I yeah. appreciated. I mean, I watched Michael Jordan, his mm-hmm. whole run uh-huh. while, you know, his, big, his first run while I was right. an undergrad. Right. And I remember watching it going, I just appreciate the excellence yeah. with which, especially his first title when he subsumed himself yeah. to win that title. And it's a similar thing here. I mean, there's a lot of parallels between him and then Derek Trucks, I call him a point guard as a yeah. as a as a guitarist right. as uh, leading his own band. There's a lot of parallels to that sports thing when you watch excellence happen in the moment when a team is prepped and all the parts are ready. Now these guys were all Michael Jordan. Like yeah. honestly, they yeah. were all LeBron. Yeah. Uh, I guess I should put it in more more normal context. No, or Steph Curry, stick, you know, like stick, it's stick with Jordan. Yeah. Just, they <laughs> were all the top level. Yeah. So nobody really subsumed themselves as much as they said, okay, how do I, you know, play within the structure so right. we win as many ball games as we can, which to them is hit as many notes as we can yeah. for our audience. And and by the way, hit the note is not play a bunch of notes. Yep. And that's the clear distinction. You know, I'm glad you said it. It's about how many, how the highest level they could attain in a musical sense. That's their success. Not all, you know, how much dollars you can make off this album. Or let's go out and we're going to play a 45-minute set, walk off the stage and go exactly. hang out with the groupies and drink our beer and snort our cocaine and do that. Right? Exactly. So it's like... We're going to give it to you. Exactly. That's the dis- And I'm glad you made that distinction because that's another thing that fascinated me, that this group was truly about 
their music. Yeah, the the drugs became a problem yes. after they recorded this album, and they were fixing it. it it's Yes, though. I mean, and and when the drugs started to become a problem and impacted the music, that is when they stopped and tried to readjust and do. And they went to a whole different version of rehab than we would go to today. I mean, the women went up and snuck in. They they came home with piles of pharmaceutical cocaine. Like, you know, they were just clearly detoxing from heroin right. and trying to get back to a normal life. That was it. So, yes, I mean, they were... An, there's another thing I had to do You know, when you asked me about like scrubbing stuff out and where did I say like I had to remove a lot of the it was all about the music because everybody says that right so I had to craft a way to do that so if Van West listens to this and he reads it I hope he will appreciate it because he did he did hit me on that point like there's only so many ways you can say they blew everybody off the stage so that was one of those okay your advisor tells you this he doesn't tell you what to cut. Right. He didn't tell you what to do. You just have to sit with something like that and say, how do I find that? So, like, there's probably 20 times more of that crap that, than what you read. Damn. You know? Damn. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to do more together, Sebastian. Oh, I'm looking forward to it. But, um, so, okay, so now you answered those two things, those two little, like, subtopics I wanted to talk about within, you know, your grand introduction of the group. So now take me to, okay, the group has formed. Right. This is March 1969. So yep. we, um, so yeah, from there on, you know, they make two albums before Fillmore East. Yep. They weren't that successful. And, you know, abysmal. Take, abysmal. Yeah, take it from there. So, you know, they, they, they formed in Jacksonville March 23rd and then 26th is when Greg arrives, 1969. They're not there for very long. There's a drug charge and a gun charge that happens and chases them out of town. Mm. They go up to Macon, which is where their record label is, Phil Walden. And they try the traditional path of success. They let's go record a studio album. They were actually recording while Woodstock was happening in upstate New York. They were in New York City. I don't have definitive proof that they got in the car and tried to go and turned around because of the traffic, but that's the legend that happens. Um, they record a studio album and they're relentlessly touring. They were probably they were they were on the road for 300 days a year their first two years. So, you know, imagine that's 60 days at home yeah. out of out of 365 days, you know, um, and hard days. You know, you're driving from one place to another. Um, I've done a mini tour throughout Florida this run. It, you know, it gets a little lonely at times and For you're sure. driving around. So can you only imagine? So and then you got the funk of six dudes in a van or in a thing. Like, come on. You know what your yeah. dorm room used to smell like, right? Yeah. Like just two dudes, <laughs> yeah. right? So you got this whole thing going, right? So. So they're on tour. They make their second album, uh, which is called Idlewild South, with a guy named Tom Dowd, who's a very famous producer, uh, down at Criteria Studios in Miami. And they really take this wild sound and they try to make it uh, an album. Um, and when you listen to it, it sounds actually really good. It just doesn't have any kind of pop to it. It's, right. it's pop, by the way, pop's a terrible word to use in this context. It doesn't have the fire. It sounds good, but when you listen to it versus, it, all you have to do is listen to the studio version of In Memory of Elizabeth Reed versus the live version to hear how it comes alive right. in front of an audience. So what's going on then is the band is selling out moderately. Mm -hmm. They're doing free shows. People love them. They're getting a lot of press, but nobody's buying their records. Right. Yep. So they make the decision and i you know 
I'm sure it came from Dwayne. I'm sure the record industry said it too, but like, we got to make our next record a live album. Mm -hmm. And then the next point, and I spent a lot, multiple chapters, multiple chapters on this, but like, how do you make that decision? Um, uh, what goes on the album? You know, they, they end up, um, recording four shows. They use the bulk of it is from the fourth show. Um, and then they decide to make it a double album. So um, a double album cost twice as much back then, but they offer it as a single album price. That's how their record company says that. So that's a big deal. Um, and it hits immediately. It comes out in July. It, you know, Within six weeks, it hits gold. It immediately jumped off the charts. Um, the band was poised for this. The, the audience was. Back to audience. Mm -hmm. um, the reviewers, most of them said, this sounds like it's the next best thing to hearing them live. Yeah. You know, and that's a repeated yeah. kind of thing. So that's what they wanted, right? right? Was 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 that. And then what's going on is the band takes off now in the middle, right afterwards they get arrested, really bad bust in Jackson, Alabama that, that could have derailed them. Right. Um, they end up touring all throughout summer of 71. They closed Fillmore East, the venue where they record the album in a show that everybody says was the greatest they ever played and nobody has a tape of still to this day i know i'm 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 telling you it's my time machine show i've they yeah. said where do you want to go on time machine 626 71 fillmore east oh bar none and give me something to keep me awake throughout the entire thing because they go until four o'clock or six o'clock in the morning like you know wow yeah um so so you know all to say that that um they're they they're they're really building a reputation right uh they go on this tour out west in october it's Dwayne's last tour with the band rolling stone sends somebody to to tour with them grover lewis um who writes a very nasty unfair article about them that comes out in the same issue that announces Dwayne's death in rolling stone yeah so basically drugs become a problem um heroin in particular um, and Dwayne makes the decision, as do several others, to go to rehab at the end of that tour. And he comes back from rehab, uh, back to Macon, and he's dead a couple days later. I think it's the same day or the next day he dies in a motorcycle accident. Um, the album continues to sell well. It, it reaches all the way up to uh, number 13 on the, on the Billboard albums chart. So the two charts are the hit the pop singles chart and the album chart. The right. album chart is really the only place the Allman Brothers did anything. You know, right. they weren't a singles band. Um, they bury Dwayne and at the service, uh, they actually don't bury him. He stays in cold storage for a year, if you can believe that. But they wow. did a service for him and the band played. The five remaining members played. I, it's still to me one of the most remarkable things as a person who has played at his family members' funerals kind of, I stole it from the Almond Brothers, but I just feel better when I play some music to my to my family, no, you know, sure. and, and whatever. So here these guys did that. Then they went out on a 90 gig tour as a five piece. Um, I find that one of the most remarkable feats in all of music history. And it cost Barry Oakley his life. He dies of a mo in a motorcycle accident on November 11th, almost, I mean, like two less than two weeks after Dwayne died. Um, they were on parallel streets in Macon, uh, about two tenths of a mile apart, a fifth of a mile apart. Um, you know, it's it's just eerie. Yeah. And by that point, I don't think I have this quote, but I remember a quote Dickie said. He's like, at that point, we were just so dang tough. We just had to go out, you know. Yeah. So quickly, the album was really successful. They finished 
the album they were working on with Dwayne called Eat a Peach, and they toured. Mm-hmm. Eat a Peach goes number four. Yeah. They are the biggest band, one of the biggest bands in land. Barry dies. The last song or one of the last he recorded is a song called Ramblin' Man, which becomes their only big hit, their only top 10 hit. Um, so that comes out on an album, Brothers and Sisters in 73. So you got <laughs> 69 is the Almond Brothers band that debut. 70 is Idlewild South, 71. Imagine this. They're putting out these albums every year. Yeah. Think about how much time goes between albums, right? Yeah. Then 72 is Eat a Peach. That's a double album. Then 73, they issue Brothers and Sisters. And Brothers and Sisters is Barry's last record. Um, he plays on Ramblin' Man, which becomes a hit. And they are the biggest band in the country. Um, and they stayed that way until they break up in 76. Um, and then form they reform in 79, stick around till about 81, 82, break up again. I think they think they're never going to get back together at that point. And then they come back together in 89 and stayed together for 25 years. So remarkable. Yeah, it's it's a it's a long, you know, and to me, I think that when you look at bands who lose, you know, key members early, um, like the doors never recovered from losing Jim Morrison. And then eventually they went out, I think in the nineties or two thousands with a bunch of different lead singers. They had the band the core band was still there. Right. You know, the Almond Brothers, to me, you know, they have this remarkable forty five year story where almost every choice they made artistically especially as they added new musicians in paid off for them because they used that same formula that they had done when they were all new Mm -hmm. and it you know so something was was right about the core you know sort of tenants there so you know there you go it's the album comes out they're super successful Dwayne dies in the most rock and roll of ways in a motorcycle accident he's 24 yes his credit list would blow both of us away by a long shot at 24 years old so clearly a gifted individual who took every opportunity he had and made the most of it. And that, you know, that's admirable too. Like I'm all, you're always looking for examples in life for like when things get kind of hairy, where can I go? Uh, who's done this before or what? I mean, that's kind of the study of history. Right. I always find it just remarkable. Like, dang, man, this guy just literally said, there's no path. I see some woods here and I really want to get there. How do I, you know what? Screw it. I'm just going to, carve my own path right yeah no it is admirable and and you know i'm not gonna lie to you one because you mentioned Dwayne's death in the intro and right off the bat and you know i was reading i was like damn, damn it i was yep. like uh, i was like it's always always something like this has to happen <laughs> in, these, in these awesome stories and it's true and then then obviously that started thinking i'm like you know you know what if he didn't die and then but then i was like and then as i continue reading especially the, the right in the beginning of the chapter one his daughter says, oh, they kill off my dad in the first paragraph of everything he gets written about. And I'm like, you know what? I'm going to respect that. And I'm not going to, you know. Yeah. I- so, I mean, listen, I, I think that so everybody who's ever approached the story, including Galadriel, all of us have to reckon with how we're going to mention that part of the story. Right. You know, um, he dies. Uh, he dies partially because he's pretty reckless. Yeah. You know, he dies because he was not intended to be around for a long time. It's very clear. He mm-hmm. sort of had that understanding. Um, so what I didn't do was, if you if you recognize, like I waited till the uh, a little bit into the introduction, I think, before I bring it up. Or if I do, it's 
Oh, no, it's in the ethos chapter, I yeah. think. Yeah, so, I mean, I'm in the third chapter now, so I didn't yeah. kill him in the first paragraph. Right. And here's why. I mean, I'll tell you this honestly. Um, I mentioned Chris McCusker earlier. She, I gave her Galadriel's book. I think it had just come out when we were studying together. And I said, here, this, you know, this book has influenced me a lot, and I know you're interested in this story. So she gave me back her copy with her notes. And on that quote from Galadriel that said, my father is killed, she said, don't do this. Yeah. So, you know... It's it's up front, but it doesn't begin the book because yeah, the story isn't defined by the death. Exactly, the story's defined by the accomplishment, right? At, in life, and then, and I'm actually I'm going to listen back to this to steal some points that because you're mm -hmm. asking very good questions that help me uh, hone my own messages to, sure. to what I'm saying because that's that's exactly it. Uh, you, yes, we got to do that. Listen, right. when I first went through. Twigs Linden killing the guy uh, in in mm -hmm. uh, Buffalo mm -hmm. and the and the drug bust weren't in the original story, and it was because and then as I reread it, I realized, holy crap, I can't tell the story without these things. Like this, I'd be pilloried, exactly, rightfully so. Right. And I remember I talked to Sue about it, my editor. Right. So Sue is a PhD historian from Indiana. Gender and sexuality is her background. Mm -hmm. Um, she wrote a book for me when I was editing a book series called uh, Interpreting LGBT History at, at Museums and Historic Sites that won an award. So she has the public history background. She's got the hard history background, but completely different than what I do. Right. Music, Southern, right. blah, blah, blah. So she had no reason to know those stories. Right. So by me leaving them out, she didn't know they were out. Exactly. The drugs, you know, yeah, the drug yeah. bust story and the murder story. So, you know, I had to be like, so for everybody's benefit, the Allman Brothers first road manager, Twigs Linden, killed a Buffalo nightclub owner, affiliated with the mob, by the way, oh. uh, according to legend or okay. innuendo or truth. Right. Um, killed him because he refused to pay the band. Mm -hmm. um, he basically was not guilty by reason of insanity. Essentially, being on the road with the Allman Brothers <laughs> made him go crazy. Yeah. So he spent only a year in um, a mental hospital, um, and then he got, he later gets out, and he died in a in a um, uh, uh, skydiving accident. Interestingly enough, yeah, he was very. Uh, <laughs> wow. uh, uh, he had a tattoo of Dwayne. He was very um, uh, close to Dwayne and was very devastated by Dwayne's death, um, and he was killed in a skydiving accident in Dwaynesburg. North Carolina, I mean, uh, New York, and everybody has this rumor like he did it on purpose because he was so meticulous. He would never have messed up his shoot, blah, blah, blah. You, no right. one will ever know. But yeah. but anyway, I'm getting my point being I had skipped some of these elements that actually really needed to be in that story. Right. But my editor didn't know that because right. I know. And this is like as you get through and anybody else listening, like a, like you're dependent. You have to know so much if you're going to write a book. Um. And then there's always those things that you forget, you know, mm -hmm. unless you're doing it carefully and making people think about it. Right. You know? No, for sure. And um, so now that we've covered yeah. the essential points. Uh, you got of, your rapid of, fire on of, me. Of I've been story. waiting on this the whole time. Well, well right, one more question oh. before the rapid fire. No, trust me. I, I'm waiting on the rapid fire, too. Um, let's talk about Dwayne Allman's legacy. You know, this last question, you know, what? is his legacy yeah so so i mean you know the the simplest one is saying here's a guy who fa a musical genre sort of emerges out of um even if it's a couple years out of his death he provided a lot of opportunity for southern musicians and southern when i say southern rock musicians meaning you know southerners who play rock music you know that was not an opportunity 
Um, I will say this. If you talk to anybody, ah, not anybody, lots of people right. playing music today, they are they are a very core part. The Allman Brothers are, um, I'll give an example. The drummer from the Smashing Pumpkins, Jimmy Chamberlain, has been their drummer since the 90s. Since I just started listening to them when I was on this campus in mm -hmm. the 90s, okay? And um, when I first heard the Allman Brothers in the 90s, I was listening a lot to the the, the Pumpkins. And I was. it didn't occur to me until Jimmy told me this. Almond Brothers are a huge influence on the original Smashing Pumpkins, on him and Billy Corgan in particular. And I'm like, you have got to be kidding me. And then as soon as I started listening to it with that thing, I can totally hear it now. It's the same way right. I can hear Miles Davis and John Coltrane on at Fillmore East because I've listened to that so much. Now I can hear it in the Almond Brothers. Now I can hear it's not as overt. And I mentioned this in there. Styles and influences don't come out like you know, like I'm going to play exactly like this or sound like this or sing like this. It's, it's, can I put my original spin on this that other people also will enjoy? So, yeah, I mean, I mean, so many people have this influence and, and it is because of this album. I mean, you know, his, his career is defined by his output, uh, for sure. The records he made, the singles he saw, the, the records he sold, uh, but it's that influence, both the band, I think that's his greatest legacy, the band that outlived him. Uh, and then, yep. you know, you talk to people, I, Marcus King, I spoke with him a little bit. He's a guitarist in this genre and, and, and he'll just be glowing about Dwayne. Um, his name comes up a lot, Dwayne. And, and because he accomplished so much at a young age, I think that messes with a lot of us. Mm -hmm. um, it's hard to see a prodigy when you're just a normal Joe yeah. or normal Bob. Yeah. Um, you know, he, that band gave you know, not only some incredibly great music, but, you know, it is it is birthed two bands that are still around today, Government Mule with Warren Haynes and Tedeschi Trucks Band with Derek Trucks and, and Susan Tedeschi out of the last version of that band. Um, so, you know, it's this enduring legacy of, of recorded music and, and approach to music, but also how you can keep it going. And I'll say Derek and Warren both, I'm pretty convinced. Um, I don't think the Allman Brothers as a, band was a real was 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 a real functional family a lot of bands are very f very young marriages essentially mm -hmm. right? right and all of a sudden you're stuck with your partners because you make really good music together so you don't really get along all that well yeah. and if you allow stuff to fester i know this from business any team anything else it if you allow it to fester it will be it will it will become a problem and it did become a problem for them and I think both Warren and Derek uh, learned that lesson about, all right, how do we keep things, you know, sort of on an open communication front and those things. I think that's a legacy that he has left as well. Um, and it may be, maybe less of Dwayne's legacy and more of the band's legacy and what those two learned from it. But, um, you know, this is one of the most influential guitarists of the rock era for, I, I think, not just for his playing, but for his ability to formulate and lead a band. Yeah. That is way greater than the sum of its parts. Yeah. Exactly. And when you listen to each of the, those six individually, they all had, you know, five, f four. The, they all had solo projects after mm -hmm. the Allman Brothers, Dickie, Butch, Barry, um, Dickie, Butch, Greg, and, and J-Mo. And all of them don't sound, to me, don't quite sound quite as good as when they're all four together. Yeah. You know. No, I... I that's know, how I approach no, it. No, for sure. Um, 
All right. So before we get into the rapid fire, I'm going to list some of the themes that I found throughout the book. And you don't have to particularly comment on it. I just want to run it by you. Go for it. So, you know, you're the I like au- this. author. So I'm taking notes, dude. Right. So um, and this is in no particular order. This is just kind of how when I finished reading the book and I went back to my annotations, I, you know, just wrote them down. But this is hire like- this guy, people. Seriously. <laughs> wow. So um, the South as a, the social, political and cultural you know, backdrop of the band's career and, you know, up, up, uprising or upcoming um, race, you know, how the, in this era the band was integrated, um, you know, still in a segregated style. Yeah, we are we are very, you know, the, the, the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act have just happened. You right. Know, so exactly. like, we are, you know, we're still in the all deliberate speed right. part of the Brown decision. Right. Orange County doesn't integrate its schools fully until 1970. So yeah. a year after the band forms, Orange County. I yeah. don't know about the rest of the right, South, right, right, but right. I, I do know Orange County. Right. Um, lessons, like a lessons theme, and this is just how Dwayne, especially early in his career, took the lessons he's learned, especially going to L.A., and how that really influenced his kind of his vision. Absolutely. Um like we mentioned, Florida, you know, how surprisingly crucial Florida is yeah. in this story, which is awesome. Isn't it great? Know? As a Floridian, you're like, yeah. hey, that's, look, that's, we got, yeah. we're going to pass it goes yeah. back a little further yeah. than this. Yeah, um, you know, like, so that, um, the blues, you know, and diversity of musical backgrounds that served uh, vital in their uniqueness, you know, that's that. And and remembering, mentioned. too, that, you know, this is a, so the blues are, you know, really derived from African traditions and, right. and the things that enslaved people brought to them and were able to keep in their culture and develop and morph into something right. that Southerners understand intuitively, black and white Southerners. Right. You know, country music of this era, at least of the earlier period, pre-rock and roll, is very blues-oriented, white people doing, you know, blues-ish music. So, yes, very much. Um, drugs, and <laughs> you mentioned it, you know, in the intro, that, and you mentioned also countless of times in this conversation we've been having, now, you didn't want to get involved with those tropes of drugs and sex, and rightfully so, um, but you know, I think you know, except how yeah. it, uh, you know, I'd say this, except how it directly impacts the right, story. Exactly. Because what a book like this can be is a whole bunch of stories about all the drugs and groupies and whatever else. And, 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 you know, that's cool. Right. That's not my jam pun intended. Um, but you know, listen, there's, there's no, there's no disputing that, that, um, psychedelic drugs mainly pot and and mushrooms had a really great effect on the band early they have said that and i'm i I, you know i can say that without being being pro drug um and there's also very clear that alcohol was a problem for those guys from the beginning um so then you have that rolling into that whole thing so you know one how it impacted and affected their music um, in a positive and a somewhat negative way, and, but their problems with drugs and alcohol and their behavioral issues as a result of it really are not important to the story, which is why I stayed out of it. Right. You know? you know, and it makes sense. And, you know, one of the most interesting quotes in terms of this like certain theme uh, that I found was Greg saying that if in just one of the rare times that the, oh, the what if scenario of Dwayne's death, he's like, oh, if Dwayne didn't have that motorcycle accident, drugs would have teared us apart. I'm really glad you found that little yeah. piece. Yeah, yeah. I, I, and and I think the way you framed it is really good. I I didn't do a lot of counterfactuals or a lot of what ifs, but um, that has always been interesting. Another thing people have said is, you know, by the time Dwayne died, they they were not as good as they were in the spring because of the drugs. Right. So and it was really, you know, when I talk drugs in this scenario, I am talking about heroin. I am talking about cocaine. I'm talking about PCP and um, you know probably barbiturates. It's you know the it, I'm not talking about 
weed and mushrooms and mm-hmm. LSD like they did in the early days. It's the harder stuff. Dickie calls them hiding away type drugs. Alcohol <laughs> is another one where you're a little more, you know, a little more in tune there. Mm-hmm. But like you said, it was more about how, it, for me, yeah. it was more, I had to keep on how it focused the music just to keep myself away from some of that shit. Because it's really titillating yeah. to talk about. Yeah, no, for but sure. But it's just like, uh, no, it doesn't. I, it does not float my boat at all. No, I, I know, and, and and you know, I'm glad you went about. You went through with that approach, with that approach, and um, so, so the other themes, just music, you know, no business, no <laughs> no fictitious appearance. You know, I, I one of my favorite quotes, I think it was from Duane, was like, "If you want to go see a fashion show, go see a go fashion. to the garment yeah, district." Go, yeah, yep. you know, this isn't about how we look; it's about what we're playing. You know, that's so. That's literally, they go to do that audition in Boston. So the band gets a really major audition for a bunch of record companies in Boston in, in early May, 1969. And they open for the velvet underground. Uh, so if you're a music head, you're going to know that name and know that band. And, um, you know, that was what everybody said, dress those guys up a little bit. One of the jokes, Butch will say, is they said, get that good looking guy from behind the organ, put a salami in his pants and have him dance around on stage, you know? Um, and and so you know like that's what they were facing. And he's like, uh-uh. I, my original uh, dissertation quote was, uh, "You want to play in my band? You better come to pick. We're not here to get dressed up and yeah. do." I I pulled that. Uh, uh, well, the press chose a better yeah, yeah, yeah. better title. Right. I'm happy with the title. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> so as okay, continuing uh, being everyday people. You know, they branded themselves the as people's the, band, the people's band. The people's and, band. You know, I thought about that when you were saying your answer. How when they released the double album of at Fillmore East, they you know it's the cost of two, but they didn't put it at that price. Yep. Which you know kind of um, there goes it gave the them something right. to sell. Right. Like, hey, look, we're the people's band. Right. We're selling you a band. You know, you're getting two for the price of one. Not and not just that. Also, just how they actually were as human beings. Were and, just, and it is yeah. it is definitely, you know, th- this is something a lot of uh, uh, cultural observers and historians will mess with kind of, well, that was their, per- you know, that was what they wanted people to see and blah, blah, blah. I, I agree. Um, but I will tell you that the sources tell me that that's exactly how they wanted to be perceived because that's how they were. Right. They were just done with that crap. Yeah. From the beginning, from the get-go, they said, you know, because they had all had similar experiences grabbing that brass ring that Dwayne had had with Hourglass. Right. They'd all had it in different ways. And then continuing, so um, uh, kind of goes with that number eight, um, the everyday people, uh, playing for free, you know, and how crucial that was yep. in the pre-At Fillmore East phase of their career. Yep. Um, number 10 here, I have, again, no particular order, just how I went about it. Um, Grateful Dead, you know, I, I mentioned this in the, earlier in the podcast, um, you know, their constant comparisons, contemporaries, and, you know, you said exemplars. Um, the long hair, how dangerous it was. Um, and then I think these last ones that I'm going to list are very, they're not as, I don't know if significance is the right word, but they're not as um, ubiquitous throughout mm-hmm. the story. Um, you know, their relationship with the law, and you've mentioned a couple of, you know, uh-huh. stories from it. They're, uh, they're the dynamic of, politics and counterculture and how they didn't really get into it too much but when they did it was still impactful mm-hmm. um we mentioned this countless of times already framing the heart of the story always back to Duane. um and we don't have that much time but this one man uh phil walden i mean you you talk about him yeah in its own chapter chapter 11 you know i don't know i don't want to speak for you but you kind of defend him 
in the sense of he there's no almond brothers without phil walden yeah so okay great great uh i don't i don't know that i necessarily sought out to defend him but i think that you know what ended up happening between phil so very quickly for uh, tori and everybody phil walden was otis redding's manager when otis redding is killed in a plane crash in 1967 and he had a whole kind of walden had a roster of stars that he had out on the road and had this intention to create a studio in Macon similar to the studios in Muscle Shoals, similar to the uh, Stack Studio and, and others, American, in Memphis, where you would have a really great rhythm section. That's why J-Mo went. He was going to be the, dr- the house band drummer. Right. And then you would bring in these soul stars into Macon and record. Walden heard Hey Jude with with Dwayne and said, no, 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 I want to sign that guy. Now, Walden had already had some trouble because he was a black, he was a white manager, mm-hmm. fast talking Southern, Southern boy, white manager, um, managing black artists. And he had gone to the 1968 NATRA, National Association Television Radio Announcers, which was the black uh, professional organization for, for, um, talent and it was in miami in miami yeah there you go florida yep, again <laughs> yep and uh and actually um uh in the middle of kind of the the ascendance of the black power uh aesthetic um uh a lot of uh <laughs> somewhat nefarious characters end up hanging around and scared the crap out of all the white executives several of them had right. to haul ass out of town <laughs> and walden was like i need i need to find me a white dude you know i want to get into white rock and roll um, so he did. Now, now here's what Walden did. I think the defend part is, uh, in in a good way. He kept them on the road. He supported their artistic decisions. Um, he kept giving them money. Right. Was very far in depth. But the problem was, <laughs> Phil Walden was their manager. Yeah. He was their public. Uh, their pub. He published the music, which means he gets a a, a fee on that. Mm-hmm. He was their booking agent, and he was their um, record company guy. So he could be negotiating against himself or negotiating yeah. for himself and it becomes really sticky yeah um walden believed in the band their success with this album validated his belief he built an entire empire upon it at the same time later the band and others started looking at his royalty statements and realized that you know that he was pulling some nonsense that was not atypical right for the era but you know, so so Walden key, absolute key to you know a very important part, and you know that chapter's a little bit of an interlude because it, yeah. it fits, it doesn't fit quite chronologically. Right. But I had to, I had to give some backstory to that. Uh, I felt to make the story you know sort of po- sort of fit. It did. Yeah. Definitely did. And um, so the last three, the frustration of studio recording, um, they all had all the band members went through that experience. Yes. They didn't really. You know, the one of the interesting quotes, I don't know who said it, it's just so many, but it was a, uh, they felt like it was like some type of prostitution where you're yeah, a prostitution. Yeah. Dickie yeah. says yeah, that. Dickie, yeah, 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 it was, it's, it's a, still forced. It just doesn't yeah. feel right. right. Because, you know, the decision to make the live album was, was, was partially because right. they needed the audience yeah, feedback in exactly. order to give their best performance. Right. Uh, last two, the FM radio and its role in you know getting the uh, Afro more East popular. There's yeah. something nobody would really understand these right. days because FM is the dial we listen yeah. to, um, but AM was where hits went. Yeah, nobody played 22 minute whipping right. post on AM yeah. radio. Yeah, 
And then, of course, the last one is just the legacy theme of not just Dwayne Allman, but the, the band in general. Um, so I'm well, glad you picked up on that. God dang, dude, you yeah, got them all. Yeah, I love this. Yeah, yeah well, ugh, awesome. I, I'm glad, you know, I, I, it's important to, to denote these themes because they're very much alive throughout the story. And it's for a reason, you know. Yeah. So. I mean, all of these, you know, one of the things I say to my friends and anybody else when you read it, like, no details too small to talk to me about. Exactly. And not just that. It's. They're not forced, so it's like thank you. Even the last, even the last couple of ones, they're not like I said, they're not as ubiquitous throughout the story, but they're still, they're still very crucial in getting from point B to C. Yeah, know? they're. I mean, all you you raised, I think, uh, much of that that sort of the arc of the story and the things within outside of the traditional things like looking at the records and right. the actual chronology of the story, like how all of this things fits the people's band for example i spent some time actually trying to do some interviews to get that and nobody really said it was right. like a thing we wrote down right but it's just it just shows up exactly. in all kinds of places including by the way speaking of bithlo you know you know bithlo over here so go okay so go out colonial uh -huh. toward toward you know the beach uh -huh. on the left is this little community called bithlo it's just just past alafaya it's okay just past the um I guess it's 417, whatever, east-west, it goes across, right. right? That, you go past there. This little tiny community. Well, they played a music festival there in March of 1970. Oh, wow. Um, and played essentially, so they moved the festival from Miami to here, and they played it for free because the festival guys got screwed, uh -huh. and they just, like, like, literally, this is in real time somebody documenting a people's band story. It's not in the book, I don't think. Which yeah, it's not. I'm gonna yeah. get to do it this way, you know. Right, 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 right. right. But 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 it happens. Like they this, they they literally were living that aesthetic. They also did a ton of uh, benefit concerts from the beginning. They were doing benefit concerts, which I will I might do more with honestly uh -huh. down the road. Awesome. Yeah. No. Um, I'm glad you were able to share that. You know, because that I don't think that was in the book. I don't but, think so either. But that's why. Hey, that's why we're here. Yeah. So. Um, all right, finally, rapid fire. Nice. So just, you know, I'm going to shoot at you and you shoot right back My at man. me. And, you know, all right. Favorite album. And if it's at Fillmore East, then the second favorite. Uh, yeah, it's definitely, definitely at Fillmore East. Uh, my second one would probably be Eat a Peach. Okay. Favorite band member. And if it's Dwayne, second. Uh, outside of Dwayne, um, it's a tie between J-Mo and Barry Oakley. Nice. Favorite song. I know you mentioned it earlier. So there's several. Uh, uh, Dreams is my favorite vocal song that they do. Uh, it it is just such a gorgeous song. It's always captured, captivated me. Um, Mountain Jam, which is on Eda Peach, is is my absolute favorite piece of music. Period. The last 13 minutes, I I want played at my funeral. Uh, I imagine that's what heaven sounds like, yeah. and I am not lying about any of this. Um, and then I think the song, if I was to say like, what's the one song? That you should listen to it's it's a whipping post on Fillmore East. that's that captures everything that they do mm -hmm. a, a, including long instrumental passages throughout i like uh yeah yeah shoot let's hear yours the no well you know it's my answers aren't as interesting because i just like i said no new, it's okay new, but, new fan established you know what do you like we, though well in terms of favorite song i think mountain jam I, I love the the drum duet solo. Oh, that's so for years I skipped so awesome. that. And and I, and I'm mad that I did cuz it is an absolute conversation. It is an absolute conversation between two drummers and I think it's wonderful. I that whole entire thing. I could sing all of it. I could sing probably 
all the ensemble parts too, not just the soloist parts. I can't tell you how many times I've listened to that 33 minute song. Yeah, it's it, and it, you know I've I've never played um, an instrument. Not closing that door though. Um, but I, uh, I I would always tell myself and people that know me, um, if I ever do get into playing an instrument, it would be drums. So so and drummers, I'll say this, man. Drummers love the Allman Brothers band. My late brother was a drummer. Like I mentioned, Jimmy Chamberlain and the Smashing Pumpkins, like. They understand there is something really yeah. special going on with those drums. So yeah, and the drums, by the way, I'll say for non musicians when they approach this band, that's really what hooks y'all, which is great for me. Because so here's the thing, Sebastian. When I listen to this, because I play music, I am blown away by the everything going on. Because I gen, I have a real understanding how hard it is to do what they're doing. Um, those of y'all who love it and don't have that background to me fascinate me not because you're any less than it's because you understand something that even I am unable to understand. Right. Right. So, and the drums are often, by the way, drums in African culture, a very important part of that. In fact, that's enslavers would say you cannot drum. That was part of the slave codes, native American culture, mm -hmm. the drum, the beat, the four, four beat. So there's something about that element, the rhythm element in music Miami's full of it with the mm -hmm. with the with the um, the polyrhythms yeah. that you bring in in the Caribbean. Yep, exactly. And you know they're they're um, they uh, Mark Quinones joined them on percussion yeah. in 1991. Yeah. So there's anything you hear after that is a ton of that stuff going on too. Yeah. So that that's where that's where that that favorite song for me comes from. I love it. Um, best song in the sense of what most fans like you consider okay consensually this is the best song of their career yeah i mean you know that i could go in multiple directions here i mean you know again if you're going to define it down to listen to one song it's 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 whipping post the full version on Fillmore east to show their dynamics dreams um uh, probably is is by far my favorite ballad of theirs mountain jam shows really the full force of them completely improv there's really no because there's no vocal line, no melody line, like the, the melody gets in there, but that shows you what six guys who can do something together are. Um, Blue Sky is is probably uh, one of the most accessible of their songs from that era. Uh, Dickie Betts' song about his wife, who is a, not a Native American, Native Canadian. She's part of what's called the First Nations. Um, so there's a, I think there's a, there's a, there's a, a range there. Um, in memory of Elizabeth Reed, we'll show you, in, uh, and on Fillmore East, their full jazz, you know, full instrumental chops, you know? Yeah, I'm just looking at Spotify's, like, their popular chart. And yeah, where are we at? Number one, it's Midnight Rider. Any thoughts on that? You know, I, so Midnight Rider is a wonderful song. It's on Idlewild South, and frankly, I don't know why that song wasn't a hit, because it's a damn good song. Um, not one of my favorites just because it's been played a lot. You know, that's that's probably right. the biggest issue for me is right. just, you know, I like it a lot. And in concert, I'd sing it along with everybody else. Uh, favorite moment of their career? Wow, favorite moment of their career. You know, I don't, I don't know that I have a favorite moment. I think that I did not go to their last concert ever. I'm very disappointed in this. I just, the schedule didn't work out. Um, but... You know, they they were a band that rose to the occasion when they played the big gig. Um, so, you know, from from the, the sessions at Fillmore East um, to when they closed Fillmore, which, you know, that'd be one of my favorite moments that I have no audio recollection of. Right. But, you know, because it's not there. Um, 
you know, when they opened, they opened the Superdome in 1975. Um, you know, they played Woodstock 94. Uh, they played the Watkins Glen Festival. I mean, they really did rise to the occasion. Um, so I don't know that I have a favorite moment, but I will say their last show, uh, they they performed a, some shows in October of, of 2014, and it's really, really, really good music. Like, they just they went out on their terms. Right. And I think that's pretty damn cool because, you know, they went up till 76, broke up, rejoined in 79, break up, and really nobody knows gives a crap about them in 82 when they break up and then they 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 make the whole climb again in 89 yeah and they stuck together for that entire period and left now look i wish they had filmed the shows i wish they had recorded it and all that but they went to the beacon theater in new york where the band at new york was where it had a lot of triumphs and they said we're going to close it off here yeah so i think that's pretty cool and they closed it with um trouble no more the first song that they played when Greg showed up in rehearsal. So like they uh, yeah. they really did bookend. It was fitting. It was right. cool. Yeah. It was cool. Uh I don't know if this is kind of the same question but it it kind of can't be. So a favorite personal moment. I, so the one that always comes to mind is I go see him in November of 1993 um down at the Brevo- at the at the Palm Beach County Fair. I'm expecting because it's at the fairgrounds that I'm going to see a nostalgia act. I'm expecting to go in there and see a bunch of old people playing the hits with a couple new members. Um, and I left a life, lifelong fan. I was so blown away, Sebastian. It would be the same if you were to like go see like Tedeschi Trucks Band today and you'd be like, oh my God, you know, like they're still doing this? Like right. it didn't stop? I was so, I was so blown away. Like I immediately drove to the record store the next day and bought a compilation album of live cuts from another era just because I was like, uh, they have to be great. And, you know, it was like, if they're this good now, you know, and I just kept seeing them there. So th- that's probably, you know, one of my favorite ones uh, uh, of them was seeing them live for the first time and experiencing it and realizing, oh, this isn't over. Right. And, and not even realizing it at the time, you know, at the point I hadn't even thought about, dream- dreamt up doing a book. Favorite solo stretch. And who? So okay, and where. so oh man, um, that is probably uh, uh, about that thirteen-minute mark in in Mountain Jam. Um, I'm sorry, it's about the let's see, seventeenth, eighteenth, eighteenth, nineteenth minute mark. Um, Dwayne starts a starts a solo, um, and Dickie follows him and answers him while Barry's doing the same thing, and it just, and then Dwayne goes and takes off on this slide run that just blows me away outside of that it's dreams his dream solo um i think is about his most perfectly constructed solo um so i guess those two you know you notice i'm, I'm ha- yeah. holding on those yeah, two yeah, songs yeah, yeah. there's a lot more like i could throw in there but those are the ones that always just part my hair favorite improv stretch definitely uh that part coming out of of barry's solo mm-hmm. yeah i would uh you know it's Barry Oakley's doing something and he starts dun, 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 and then Dwayne counts off to four and uh, uh, actually Butch Trucks misses it and he's he takes a couple beats to get caught up while the entire band stays on his count on Dwayne's count and they catch back up and that that improvisational stretch with those guys it's like watching you know again a finely tuned team of basketball players just passing the ball right, right. like just 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 everything is going right it's like right. watching the 86 Celtics or or yeah. you know or Jordan's yeah. Jordan's Bulls 
um you know it's just and it's it's just one guy says something and the next says and you know i put it in the book as yes and amens because there was yeah. nothing else i could say right other than that's yeah man, like you're doing for me now yeah. that's that's exactly how they're doing but they're saying it with exactly with their axes yeah. and it's just you know so that's probably it um uh, in terms of like pure improv, I'm I'm certain as I think about more that over the years they would get a little more creative with it. Sometimes there's this great stretch on um, a, a show from September of '73 where they go. Uh, I had it. On, it was the first. It was it was the side B of a two. It was it was a, a side A tape two of a cassette mm-hmm. bootleg I had, and it was uh, you don't love me. Uh, Labrere and A minor and one uh i can't now remember the other one but it was i oh jessica rolls into it so it's like 45 minutes of more or less instrumental music like and that's latter period that's mm-hmm. not Dwayne. that's another one that i dearly love awesome. they do a lot of talking like you listen to their live stuff they're constantly right you know it's a it's a it's endless for me to listen to awesome and uh last two rapid fire questions where do you rank Dwayne on the greatest guitars all time list you know, I mean, he's my number one right. by far. Okay. Um, uh, you know, he's so so in the list that they run. Right. You know, the first list that Rolling Stone ran, which was I think just David Frick doing his list. He was he was number two. Yeah. Which I found surprising, uh, uh, uh because most people don't put him up that high. Yeah. But he's a top ten guy for sure. All four. I mean, him and Dickie are are all-timers Derek and Warren also all of them in the top in my opinion top 100 if not top 50 guitarists of all time where do you rank the Almond Brothers band in the pantheon of the rock genre greatest ever what are you talking about <laughs> I can't say it in my book um well, you know that's why I ask you yeah here. no no you know like I think they're just they're incredible because what they do is they're really you know it's a Jerry Garcia used to have this quote about the dead we're not um the best at what we do, we're the only people who do what we do. And I think the Allman Brothers are the same way. And that's what, you know, uh, 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 segment leaders, market leaders do is they create something completely out of nowhere. So, you know, um, there are, there are, you can make an argument for a lot of bands. Right. And I will, and I can too, by the way. Right. Um, they are my top for all these factors and more or less because I just really love what they do. Right. And I like the music that comes from it, you know, like, her uh, uh Dwayne recorded a record with jazz flautist Herbie Mann. I like that record. You know, do I like it cuz Dwayne's on it? Yeah, probably. <laughs> you know, but um you know, Dickie Betts did an album called Highway Call that is really unique and really special. I wish he'd done at least one more of them, you know. That their music just provides me with all of that. And that's not true about a lot of other bands. Yeah. Well, um unfortunately time is up and um I wasn't able to ask you some of your hey, we gotta go yeah yeah oh shoot so um real quick i just want to say thank you and we'll leave the the other the other half that we didn't get to uh other, it's another time yeah another time let me know for sure all right we gotta go i didn't realize we were this late okay all right everybody all the listeners play all night Dwayne allman and the journey to fillmore east this is dr bob Beatty. this was by far one of my most favorite and awesome interviews and please everyone who's listening to this go get the book i'm saying that because what we covered in these two hours and 17 minutes it was a lot but we're just scratching the surface at film at long live the abb 
is my social media is at long live the ABB. So that's Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. So join me in the discussion. Check them out, guys. Appreciate it. Thank, Thank you. you. That was the pod. I hope you all enjoyed listening to it. Um, it was a long one, but there was no redundancy in the conversation. Just every avenue, every question I asked, every segue, not even segue, because everything was important in the conversation. So I hope you all enjoyed listening to it as much as I did producing it. And um, as you can see at the very end, we went over time. I mean, that's how, you know, to be in the theme of the Almond Brothers, we know we were hitting the note and that's exactly what we were doing that I could even ask my uh, my final questions about his career. But we'll get that to another podcast, you know, more opportunities. So, yeah. So I hope you all enjoyed it. And please subscribe to this podcast to hear future conversations about history for night's history cast. I'm Sebastian Garcia. Thank you all for listening. I really appreciate it. And I'll see you on the next one. Thank you, everybody.